optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Nulo Pet Food, an independently owned company out of Austin, Texas that delivers the very best pet nutrition with high meat, low carb recipes for dogs and cats. I am super stoked about this sponsor. I had no idea they were based in Austin. But I found Nulo through a number of friends of mine and veterinarians. It's what I feed my own dog, Molly. And when I switched Molly over to Nulo, that's N-U-L-O, a couple of years ago, it not only made an immediate difference in the way she looked, her coat, for instance, is much softer and much shinier. I could also tell it made a huge difference in how she felt and performed day to day. So I have Nulo all over the place. There's a bag of Nulo about 30 feet away from me in the office where I sometimes feed Molly when she comes here. I have Nulo at home. I have Nulo in gallon size bags for travel. Nulo is always with me and Molly. She loves how it tastes because Nulo pet food has a lot of meat in it. And I can't really imagine feeding her anything else at this point. If you have a pup and you've been thinking about upgrading their food quality in 2020, check out nulo.com slash Tim. That's N-U-L-O.com slash Tim to see some of Molly's favorite products. By using the promo code Tim, T-I-M, you'll also get 50% off any trial size bag on their site. So two things to remember nulo.com slash Tim, and then promo code Tim. As good pet parents, it's up to us. It's up to you, doggy parents, cat parents, to get the nutrition piece right for them. So check out nulo.com slash Tim and commit to feeding your pets better food this year. They'll love you for it and you'll love what it does for them. So one more time, that's nulo.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably athletic greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This episode is brought to you by Inktel. And I've used them personally. Ever since I wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, I've been asked over and over again how I choose to delegate tasks, how I do 80-20 analysis, and so on. At the root of many of those decisions is a simple question, actually two questions. Number one, how can I invest money to improve my quality of life? I use that in investing as well. The second, how can I spend a little money or moderate money to save significant time? Inktel is one of those investments. They're a turnkey solution for all of your imaginable customer care needs. I used Inktel during the launch of the 4-Hour Body, which was very, very involved, and they provided 24-7 customer service for my Land Rush campaign because it was critical for me to take care of every person who purchased my books and participated. This allowed me to focus on the things that I am better at, my strengths, like the marketing plan that we'd worked on for six months, implementing that. Inktel trains their experienced customer service reps to know your business and your products inside and out and make your customers raving fans. They answer more than a million customer service requests every year, and they can do so across all platforms including email, phone, social media, text, even chat. Leaving your customers with poor service or just mediocre service, which, by the way, in a competitive pool is a huge liability. Long wait times or unanswered messages carries a massive cost and risk to your business. Inktel removes the logistics and headaches of this type of communication, allowing you to focus on your strengths and grow your business. It can be a real competitive advantage, and I see many, many e-commerce companies and tech companies thinking of customer service as a good enough checkbox or an afterthought. And just like Airbnb used design in innovative ways to be a competitor and to win, you can do the same thing with customer service. So as a listener of this podcast, you can get up to $10,000 off it's a big discount. $10,000 off your startup fees and costs by visiting inktel.com forward slash Tim. So check it out. For more info, go to inktel.com, I-N-K-T-E-L.com forward slash Tim. Hello, ladies and germs. This is your host, Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm very super excited to introduce this interview. I've been wanting to meet today's guest, Richard Turner for at least two years now. And <laughs> I really expect that he will blow your mind for a bunch of reasons. I first came across Richard Turner, richardturner52.com. You can find him, YouTube forward slash richardturner52 in the documentary Delt, D E A L T, directed by Luke Corum. I can't remember the last time, well, I suppose I can in this case, it was this documentary, but I can't remember the last time prior to that I'd finished a documentary only while the credits are still rolling, uh, wanting to watch it immediately again. I also can't remember a doc that made me quite as emotional as Delt did, pushing me from laughter to tears. It has 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, won the Audience Choice Award at the South by Southwest Film Festival, yada, yada, yada. Everyone should watch it. But let's get to my guest. So who is Richard Turner? Richard is regarded as the best card mechanic, we'll explain what that means, and among the best close-up 
or up-close magicians in the world. He's entertained millions of people, including notables like Johnny Carson, Bob Hope, Secretary of State Colin Powell, actor Brad Pitt, sports legend Muhammad Ali, and many, many more. Richard has received all sorts of accolades, won all sorts of awards, including the Close-Up Magician of the Year Award, which is the magic industry's equivalent of the Oscar. His skill with a deck of cards is just, one could argue, unparalleled. Really just incredible. People consider it greatness, grace. It is, it is hard to even comprehend. He's been featured on all sorts of television shows around the world, including a performance on Penn & Teller, Fool Us, in which Penn Jillette, also a recent guest on this podcast, admitted, quote, Richard Turner is one of the finest sleight-of-hand artists who has ever lived. He fooled us with every single move he did, end quote. Richard is also a six-degree black belt, and we'll get into all of that and more on the podcast in the conversation you're about to hear. One very quick and important note, Towards the end of the interview, you will hear Richard performing card tricks, and he, he walks through it and talks about things as he does it, so you can get a lot just with the audio, but he did all of this in front of me and absolutely blew my mind. I highly recommend checking out the video that we captured on YouTube as we made sure to get multiple angles for this episode. You can find that at youtube.com forward slash Tim Ferriss, two R's and two S's. And not to sound like a mullet-wearing Long Island boy, which I have been, but this footage is simply fucking amazing. It's incredible. In part because of something I didn't mention, and that is that Richard is completely blind. So, you're in for a ride, my friends. So without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Richard Turner and the video, which you can find at youtube.com forward slash Tim Ferriss. I'm just going to start at the beginning. Richard, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming to Austin. Tim, I'm honored to be here. It is very much my pleasure. And I was mentioning this before we started recording. I have had you at the top of my list for people I want to spend time with because I find just about everything about you fascinating and have wanted to ask so many questions. And I thought we would start maybe in a place that, that would be unexpected for people listening. I'm not going to start way at the beginning. In childhood, we'll probably get there. But let's start with the Magic Castle. What, what is the Magic Castle? The Magic Castle is to magic what the Grand Ole Opry is to country western music. It's the premium place for magicians to perform around the world. And they have what is the equivalent of the Oscar, the Academy of Magical Arts Awards, AMA Awards. And, um, but we, uh, it's a 27,000 square foot Victorian mansion built in 1907. And there's, you go in, it's strictly for adults, 21 or over, must have ID. Back to the old days, you have to have coat and tie. You cannot overdress. If you're underdressed, they don't let you in. They don't like what you dressed, they don't let you in. And, uh, and it's by invitation only. But it's just a very, very fun venue and place to perform. I just got returned from performing at the castle. La night before last. <laughs> I just flew in last night. <laughs> you have one of the busiest schedules I've ever heard of, and I've met some very, very uh, driven, <laughs> busy people. Uh, the Magic Castle has been this vision in my head, or it was, I should say, for many years, and I had the opportunity to go there for the first time just last year oh. with, with a member, and... I, it just blew my mind to see the variety of skill and the level of skill 
in the various rooms because there are these these uh, different rooms for different perform performers and different types of performances. Could you speak to, and I, I, I hope I'm getting this name right, Di Vernon? Oh yes, you got it right. So who, who is Di Vernon and how did you first meet? Well, Di Vernon, first of all, was born in 1894. He lived to be over 98 years old. My wife, my beautiful wife, Kim, and I threw him his 98th birthday party two months before he passed away. And he was known as the man who fooled Houdini. And that took place 100 years ago this year. Wow. 100 years ago. And Houdini had a boast that he could, if he saw the same trick three times, he could figure it out. Vernon did, did it for him five times, couldn't figure it out. And uh, so he was known as the man who fooled Houdini. And for over a half a century, he was the best in the world with a deck of cards. And there's different types of magic. There's the big, what we call furniture movers, the big illusionists. And most of those things, those, that type of show, is really money uh, more than talent. You just have to pay $200,000 to buy this big illusion that turns a cat into a person, you know, inside of a cage or whatever. And then there's the parlor magician where the, the link rings and make eggs come out of their mouth or whatever, something along those lines where a smaller audience, but uh, that's called parlor magic. Then there's the close-up magician who will do stuff right in front of your eyes, like they'll make coins jump from one hand to the other, and, or they'll do card tricks. But the, uh, the most difficult of all forms of sleight of hand is the work for the card table, the gambling work. And that work is the most closely guarded information of all sleight of hand. Nowadays with the internet, just about everything is exposed. And Vernon, um, wanting to know about more, about more about the moves of the gamblers, first read a book in 19, written in 1902 called Expert at the Card Table by S.W. Erdnase. And nobody knows who Erdnase was. And the, at that time, the magicians, the 19-teens and 20s, they, oh, we don't care about that book. That stuff's too hard to learn. And Vernon had it mastered by the time he was like 12 years old. And, um, and so he spent his life hunting down hustlers. He's the first one that found Alan Kennedy in 1930-31 who supposedly could deal cards from the middle of the deck, which no one thought that was possible. And uh, so that, and that information was the most closely guarded pieces of sleight of hand that you can get a hold of if you get a hold of it. And he had passed it on just special people like Charlie Miller and a few others. And uh, he, I met him in 1975. Uh, I'll, give, I'll tell you a quick backstory. Kind of oh, yeah, it doesn't have to be quick, but okay. please go ahead. I was working with a guy named Bob Yerkes, Y-E-R-K-E-S. He was just at my show on Sunday. He's gonna turn 87 next month. He's been in stunts, he's been in stunt business for 73 years. His first movie was in 1947 with Elizabeth Taylor, and he's doubled everybody under the sun. Literally thousands of stunts in, on television, thousands of stunts in film. Like in the movie Earth, uh, Towering Inferno. Or earthquake. He died seven times in earthquake. <laughs> no, died multiple times in Tower Infernal, and on and on. He was on the move recently with uh, uh, Tom Hanks on, on Angels and Demons. He was the minister that was being burned alive, and they forgot to turn the fan on to blow him out. <laughs> and Tom Hanks says, "Well, at least he didn't have to act because he wasn't acting. He was screaming, turn the fan. I'm all, I'm hot." <laughs> anyway. But anyway, so I was working with him. We were training, a, it was a show called Circus of the Stars where we trained celebrities to do circus acts. And I was, for better or worse, I'll just call him my, his gopher. And, um, but I lived with him and he's a dear, dear, dear friend for has been for 50, almost 50 years. 
And um, and so we were training uh, for the Circus of the Stars and uh, a Linda Carter show called Wonder Woman. And uh, I, Divernon heard I could do some very uh, difficult moves with the cards. I just turned 21. And I found I was going to meet him at the Magic Castle. And I found out the night before I had to have a suit to get into the castle. At that time, I couldn't afford a suit. I didn't have a suit. And so I thought, okay, I had my gambling money. I always had a, you know, at that time, stacks of 20s, which was a lot of money for me. And, uh, and so I went to the Northridge Shopping Center, set my deck of cards on a coat rack, started thumbing through coats. The sales guy comes up to me and says, I'll cut you high card for that coat. And I thought to myself, this is my lucky day. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll go for that. And he, goes, and he backs up and said, no, no, I'm just kidding. And I said, tell you what, I took out two twos and a queen. I said, come over to your desk here. I moved him and I said, if you tell me where that queen is, I'll pay double for the coat I picked out. If you get it wrong, you give it to me for free. And he goes, really? And I said, really? Well, I threw those cards and darn if you didn't miss it. I said, tell you what, I'll bet the coat against a pair of pants. Give you a chance to get your coat back. And he goes, okay, lost again. I said, tell you what, coat pants against a shirt and tie. He said, okay, but this is the last one. And uh, he lost again. So I walked out of there did, with a brand new suit, didn't pay a dime. I said, if I would have known he was going to uh, go for it, I wouldn't have picked out the cheapest coat in the place. It was a 10 corduroy piece of crap that I still have today because it's how I first met Vernon. And so I still have it as a souvenir. But anyway, so I get to the castle and, um, and he, Vernon... There was two guys in the room, Di Vernon, and the, this was in the library, which was separate, mm -hmm. uh, closed off to the, the public, and, uh, and another guy named Tony Giorgio, who's best known as the actor in the movie Godfather. He played, played Bruna Tattaglia, which was Vito Corleone's toughest henchman. Ah. And there's a scene in the movie where a guy takes a knife and stabs with his hand in the bar. Yeah. The guy with that knife, that was Tony Giorgio. That's Tony. And he was a bust-out man back in the 40s and 50s. What is bust-out man? Mean? A bust-out man is somebody who a casino will have on hand. Oh, hey, that's Tim Ferriss. He's got some money. Okay, Tony, take him out fast. So a bust-out man means they're going to take you down. They're going to take you down quick, get that money from you. Or if it turns out that, man, that Tim Ferriss, he was just too lucky. Okay, Joe, you're out of here. Tony, you're in. Get that money back. And getting back means bust you out fast. That's using card techniques? Yeah, using slide of hand, using card techniques, exactly. Gambling moves, whatever whatever his artifice was. Mm -hmm. Probably, in that case, a peak with a second deal. And, Say that uh, one more time? A peak. That was, he would peak the top card, mm -hmm. or know what the top card is, and then he would deal the card under the top card. So you can see that card on top? What's that card? That's five hearts. Okay, and as, as he would deal to the other players, See, that top card is not moving. It's, and for, the, right. for those that can't see what we're doing, I'm dealing the cards in slow motion, and the top card is not moving as the second card comes out. But it looks as though it's the top. And like, like here's even with one hand. <laughs> now, and of course, when the card's face down, I turn it face down. Yeah. Now you're watching, and you can't tell that you've been swindled. <laughs> so he would take them down. And so then he became an actor in the... Uh, 60s, yeah. and um, anyway, so at the table was Di Vernon and Tony Giorgio, and Giorgio was, you know, he was about six foot four, mean, nasty, mafia hitman. I play, I always used to say, he never had to act, he just played himself, mean, nasty, mafia hitman, <laughs> and uh, because we had battles for altogether 38 years, but we battled each other for 20 years, 
And at first I was no threat, but anyway, I'm showing Vernon my moves. And he goes, Vernon goes, well, now that's all right, but, but I don't care how fine you breathe, when you're moving your hand like that, it's unnatural. It's, uh, it, t- it tips you off, and every time I did anything, Giorgio, Kippenstein from the other table, not involved in our little private uh, get-together, would yell, we'll get the money, we'll get the money. And then I'd show him something, we'll get the money, we'll get the money. What did he say? Well, we'll get the money. Won't get the money. Well, not get the money, but it was won't get the money, which is... In other words, it, it's not good enough for the card table. Uh-huh. And so, <laughs> so that's just, that is uh, sort of sleight of hand smack talk. That is, yes, that is smack all, talk. That, Won't get the money. That is like your mama type yeah. of line exactly. at the card table. Exactly. Right. Won't get the money. You get a double banger. You shot twice. And, uh, and so, but Vernon, then I showed him the move I just showed you and that technique. He thought that was kind of clean because it was more natural. And uh, so I remember what he said and... Uh, I went home and I practiced what he said. I don't care how much you move your hand, no matter how fine that brief is, it's unnatural action. So naturalness, and that's what I learned from Vernon, naturalness, you have to be natural in your execution. And, uh, and so I practiced it, and the next time he saw me, he goes, now that's better, that's better. And he took, and he took a liking to me, because he would see that I would put in, I practiced at that time, and this is, I, and it's not an exaggeration, even though I almost wish it was, because it, I, I, I would practice an average of 14 hours a day. That was my average time practicing. But sometimes it might be only 10 hours because I spent extra time in the gym because I was training for some kind of a fight. Or in other days, I got up at uh, 6 in the morning, went to bed at 3, and I might have, may have practiced 20 hours that day. But my average practice time was 20, it was 14 hours. And that was sustained for 26 years, seven, day, seven days a week. And Vernon saw this obsession in me, and so he took me on as a pro, uh, well, a student protege, and to cut to the chase, I became the recipient of a century worth of his most guarded card table artifice, Th- techniques that he traveled the world, finding down these hustlers and learning their moves, and uh, and he and I still have things today that only he and I know, and I've created things today that only he and I know, and he's not telling anybody. I think it was. Uh, uh, ben, uh, was it Benjamin Franklin said, three people can have a secret, but you have to kill two of them. <laughs> so if, uh, if we talk about your practice, because your, your practice and work ethic, it, it struck me when I first saw Delt, it struck me as I've done homework in preparation for this meeting. What makes good practice? Because there are people who practice a lot, they put in a lot of hours, but their skills don't improve or improve much. So what what makes good practice for you? Very, very, very good question, Tim. First of all, I I say practice does not make perfect. Do they say practice makes perfect? No, practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Right. You can practice something wrong when you've done it's perfectly wrong. And I see it in my industry all the time. They'll practice a second deal in some awkward fashion where uh, the most common one is a strike second. And I'll give a visual clue uh, picture. The card is turned face up on the deck. They'll, they'll hold, first of all, usually they hold the deck in real tight, what's called a mechanics grip or a real deep grip. And I'll lighten up the grip a little bit. And then um, when they go to take the card, they'll bypass the card they've taken so they can hit the second card and deal it out. 
and and that this tip, this is the standard second deal that you'll see people do, mm-hmm. but it has all kinds of tells. It has a lot of tells. First of all, you're pushing the top card over to receive it with the other hand. So why is the right thumb bypassing the left thumb? Is this because so they as exposure of the top of the deck where that second card is to get a hold of it? That is a totally unnatural action, but you'll see it all the time. And then and then and then you don't have a dead deck. Uh, one of Vernon's students and who became a peer of Vernon's was a guy named Tar- Charlie Miller, who I had the privilege of spending time with. And they grew up all through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. 80s. And uh, Miller talks about a dead deck. When you're dealing the top card, everything below it, there's no movement. Uh. And so if there's movement being made, when you're taking the second card out and the top card is going back, you don't have a dead deck. You have movement of two different movements. The second card coming out, the top card going back. Now watch my second deal. There's there's no, I'm I'm not crossing the thumbs at all. And my left thumb, is uh, uh, there's no leaking to the card right. at the other other corner, and I'm not going anywhere near the top of the deck. And this um, that particular second deal, I, I have practiced. Well, I've done it in front of a live audience about five million times, and in practice, I've done it over a hundred million times. That one move, and I I proclaim, I say, I say that it's probably the most difficult move in all of sleight of hand, because there's only two, three other people that are getting it down. And one guy's been working on it after he, after he watched my videos for 30 years now. And, uh, and, but it just takes a long time. But anyway, get off, off a track. Practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Same thing with in the martial arts. Mm-hmm. You know, you throw a sidekick. You know, the people that swoop the kick up as they go. You lift it and you shoot it in like a, like a, like a blade. Like a you head. practice it wrong, you sit there practice it when you're done, it's, it's not wrong, it's perfectly wrong. Yeah. Okay, and then, <laughs> and then there's another thing I, I, I like to say. Um, uh, uh, discipline breeds discipline. Uh, they say, how do you put in time? And when I'm telling people when they wanna train or something, I say, the more you do something, the more you can do of it. Discipline breeds discipline. Mm-hmm. You do something, and then the more you're able to do it, and the better you do it. And, so, and then they say, well, I just can't run a marathon. I say, don't run a marathon. Right now, I want you to just walk down the distance of two houses and walk back. Make it so easy, you can't talk yourself out of it. Right. The next day, walk the distance of three houses, come back. Then the next day, jog down the distance and come back. And then eventually, your body starts adapting to the habit, and those endorphins start getting released. And then after a certain period of time, it's like, will you get back in the house? Does it have to be a marathon? You know, so <laughs> discipline breeds discipline. I love that. perfect practice makes perfect. So let, let's talk about your physical practice, the training. And I have so many notes here in front of me. Uh, it's an embarrassment of riches as... Uh, as, a, as I have written down here, CBS producer David Rubin. Turner's life story is too incredible for fiction, and there's, there's a lot to that statement we'll get back to. You mentioned the stunt work. Uh, you've flown on a trapeze, tightrope walks. You have... High falls. Yeah, high falls. You've done an... Cliff a, a, diving. You've done an incredible amount of physical cultivation. Mm-hmm. And I have... 
have a line here. So on March 5th of this year, you will have not missed a workout in 49 years. True. All right. Why is training important to you? Why would you go to the trouble, as I have down here, in the 70s, there were no gyms when you were on tour, so you traveled with a wooden briefcase with 120 pounds of weights inside. Sounds like a workout in and of itself. Why is it so important to you? Um, well, part of it is when I was growing up, I was always the second smallest or second smallest in my class. Mm -hmm. And I would get beat up or I'd get pushed around. And um, then we watched, uh, and then we haven't really got off on this point yet. Yeah. At nine years old, I started losing my sight. Right. My sister Lori, uh, who I call my genius sister because she's brilliant, and I, we both got scarlet fever. I was nine, 1963, she was five. And that caused, with, for me, within a matter of moments, I'm fourth grade watching this chalkboard, and all of a sudden, it just went blurred. It was like someone took the, chalk, the chalkboard and smeared the chalk. It was that sudden. It was that sudden. And the same thing with my sister. One minute, uh, in the, she went from, from full sight to legally blind. And... Um, so now I'm, we, we were forced in second, third, and fourth grade to watch a movie called Lord of the Flies. Mm. And, and I, to this day, don't know why they made kids watch a horrifying movie like that. And what it was about was a group of kids stranded on an island, and a group of boys. They were all like between probably 8 to 12 years old, somewhere in that age frame. And there was one boy called Piggy, mm -hmm. and he was a chubby boy, and he had to wear glasses, and he had asthma. And they found out that they could use his glasses to make a fire. And because he was chubby, they called him Piggy. And so he was picked around, and he had asthma, and then and when at 10 years old, I found out that I had asthma. All of a sudden, I'm just deathly sick, because we, we were very poor. Our house literally was a structure set on a ditch about a six foot, di a foot ditch. And my dad poured concrete down in that ditch to make my bedroom. And during the winter, I'd, my bed would have four, five, six inches of water under it, which yeah. means molds. And I was definitely allergic to molds. And I would just get extremely ill. And so I was, now I'm blind, had asthma, and I was skinny. He was chubby, Piggy was blind asthma, and he was chubby. And so I thought, I don't wanna be a piggy. I don't want to be a coward. And I was afraid I was going to be a coward because I was afraid. And I was afraid of getting beat up. And I was afraid when I'm walking down the street, uh, a guy named Leland, you know, picks a fight with me and, and, and I get hurt. Doug Ferguson beat me up and uh, others anyway. So I, I didn't want that. And then there was another show that affected my, what kind of caused me to go off the charts the other direction was called Lost in Space. Mm -hmm. And there was a little boy on there, Billy Mummy, uh, played Will Robinson. And there was the man on the show, Dr. Smith, who was the man, the coward, hiding behind a rock while this goofy-looking monster made out of paper mache would come walking up and Billy Mummy would save the day, the little kid. And I thought, he's brave, and, the, and I was afraid of turning out like Dr. Smith. Hmm. And, then the, and then the third thing was Tarzan movies. You'd see them walk across... Uh, a tree spanning two cliffs that maybe a hundred feet down, thousand feet down, and then uh, there was always the guy that turn around and say, "Whatever you do, don't look down." And then there, the next guy would be the coward would look down and ah, 
goes screaming to his death. And I was afraid I'd be that coward that would look down and, and, and panic and fall down. So I started just taking things to the outer limits as far as pushing myself. And, I, and, and growing up, I had three, three movies on the other side that affected me. One was uh, Ben-Hur, starring mm -hmm. Charlton Heston. There's a scene in the movie where he's pulling the oars with his big bulging biceps. And that image of strength you know, made me want to be stronger. I want to be strong. I want to, I want to be strong like him. And, uh, another one was um, The Green Hornet, starring Bruce Lee as, as uh, Cato. Cato. And, uh, you know, and I thought, I want to kick like Cato. And, uh, and the, the third one was, uh, was uh, uh, the one that really probably set my life on fire was uh, James Garner in Maverick. He was the cool, slick gambler. And I want to be a card shark. <laughs> so those are the three things. But that's really what started me off on taking things to the extreme. Whatever someone else did, whatever they benched, I was going to bench more. Whatever their split was, I got to where I could do a 200-degree split. In fact, I, there's even video out there. I'm stretched across two chairs, and I'll touch my head to the floor. And uh, so anyway, I, always, I just had this thing of whatever someone else did, I had to top it. Not that I was able to top everybody, which I was not, but I, on the top people in the top 1%, and I've trained with some very world-class athletes, you know, and I either trained them or trained with them, and, and, uh, and people had a hard time, Frank, keeping up with me. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're still an extremely fit guy. You told me before we started recording that you worked out at five this morning. Yeah, well, and you understand this, because you're an athlete yourself. You know, that's, that's another thing I, I, I do, because it, it wakes me up. It gets, it gets the adrenaline going, the endorphins shooting, and because and, uh, I had I had shows all week last week, every day, and, uh, and I flew in last night at 9, 9 p.m., and I thought, okay, I need to be on my, on my best game, because I'm meeting Tim Ferriss, and we're gonna be talking for two hours, and I have been, my voice was already, Worn from all the shows I've done, and uh, what's the best way? First person says, "Rest, relax, get ready." Uh uh. I was in the gym, and then all of a sudden I started at five, and I went, "It's eleven minutes after seven. I've been in here for two hours and eleven minutes. My ride's going to be here in forty-nine minutes." Dashed to the down two fish tacos that my wife made. She makes the best fish tacos anywhere on the planet, my wife Kim, and I down those things, and then shower, and here we are. And here we are. <laughs> and uh, as, as you mentioned, you know, we, we hadn't covered and hadn't talked about Sighted uh, or the, uh, the other CBS, the... Uh, uh, is it, has, Charles Bonnet Syndrome. Charles Bonnet Syndrome. That's French, and English is Charles Bonnet Syndrome. Especially in Texas, yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and, and I didn't and I and I didn't bring it up earlier very deliberately because I want people to understand that your incredibly deft technical mastery of what you do stands on its own head to head against anyone. Period. Full stop. So I wanted to make I that appreciate that. Yeah, it's true. And that's certainly been recognized by many people. And I, so I didn't want to, I certainly want to chat about the, the Charles Bonnet syndrome. 
um, but I didn't want to lead with it. Mm-hmm. But but since uh, since it came up, uh, and and uh, we we chatted very briefly about this before we started recording. Could you please talk to me about the red and blue spectrum? Um, because because I've I've heard you or I've, I've and I've read you uh, say that you you can see things or you see things that other people don't see, and I'd love to just know what your sort of experience of reality is like. My world that I live in. Your world. Yeah. First, let me explain what CBS Charbonnet syndrome is. First documented in 1760 by Charles Bonnet. Charles Bonnet, and um, it's a very rare condition. And Dr. Oliver Sacks, he's a best-selling author, and I'm sure Amazing you know, author. Yes, I'm sure you're familiar. He has two books, one called Hallucinations, the other one called uh, The Mind's Eye, where he goes into specifics on CBS. And he's probably documented more cases than anybody. Hmm. And up till 1990, there was only six documented cases. And then he's wow, only six up to 1990. Uh, uh-huh. And then he's uh, documented a few others. And uh, I'm... I'm the most extreme case on the planet. Most people, what it, first of all, let's kind of give you a picture view of what CBS is, Chabonet. And that's where you see, a person that's blind and should see nothing will see sporadic colors or splatters or, or pieces of images or, or just some visual things, almost like hallucinations. Right. And they're sporadic. In my case, I'm, it's 100% 24/7, and it's not just in, uh, just part of my vision. I see a 160-degree kaleidoscope of beautiful, vivid colors, patterns, shapes. Every subconscious image you could imagine, and I don't see them in the back of the brain like when you're dreaming or imagining. I look at them. I see them in front of me. I see them in external space, just like you're seeing me in right. external space. They're like an object that there, you're There's something I'm looking at it. Right now, I'm in the blue spectrum. And to explain the difference between blue and red, I have a, a neuroscientist um, that was doing some uh, interviewing me for some projects and stuff. And he said the red spectrum, which is more geometric shapes, uh, it's, everything is, first of all, there's a grid. And it's usually a grid like layers of bricks. And they're always perfectly aligned. And they're perfect rectangle bricks laid out just like a brick. This building. is in the red or in This is the red. This is the red. Okay. And then it's always maroon, which is my favorite color. One of my favorite colors in the red spectrum. So the brick, what would be the, the, the gray mortar, is actually maroon. And then the red bricks. And in those bricks are all every geometric shape. Circles, squares, triangles, stars. Just every geometric shape you can imagine. And in those shapes will be any, every subconscious image that's floating around in my, in my brain. Okay, that's the red spectrum. He said that's the, if I remember, that's the lower part of the brain. And, um, and then the blue spectrum, which is, I call it the right brain, the, the analytical. The other is the blue spectrum, which is very artistic. There's no random, it's not, it's, it's totally random. If you picture, I call it like breaststrokes, breaststrokes. <laughs> I like breaststrokes. Yeah. Well, but only, I, I like there's both. only two breasts that I'm allowed to stroke. <laughs> and they belong to Kim. Okay. <laughs> and I don't want any slaps from you. No. Okay. So it, All good. Brush strokes. Is brush strokes, I, yeah. You, I guess you can see where my, my mind is right now. I just got in a week from, week, week from away from my beautiful wife. Okay. So brush, 
I did to get brush strokes. It's okay. I've been making Freudian slips all all week. Uh, The more Freudian, the better it is. So so in the blue, you have these brush strokes. Brush strokes. And And then royal blue to blue to turquoise blue to sky blue to... Emerald green to lime green, all the way down that, 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 that spectrum, and they're just random strokes, and and then floating around is like I said, every subconscious image you can imagine, and it, just picture yourself underwater in a pool, with the light coming in and the light spectrum breaking down like a prism. Right, breaks down the light spectrum. So all these colors just floating around, and it's all the images are two dimensional, but they're layered three dimensionally. Mm. If you can picture that, so like it, panes of glass. Yes, it just back and forth, your know, depth forward, and and the thing about it is, I can take any particular image, um, and I, I probably I'm, I'm won't, I won't get slapped, but she might go again. Like <laughs> <laughs> I can take a picture of a image of my beautiful wife in her bikini, mm-hmm. and I can you know take it, zoom it in, rotate it, you know, uh, or or where I use it most is if I'm create, uh, designing, a, I, I built, designed and built my own homes. Mm-hmm. And, or like a patio deck. And my wife Kim will tell you, I'm sitting in my, my chair and I'm watching in full three dimension, huh. like virtual reality. I basically yeah. live in virtual reality. And so my whole, my, my spectrum is my own computer. So I want to design a, 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 a deck. And I built this three level deck and I would say, okay, I need uh, four by twelves post now four by twelve across there and then up two by sixes they'll anchor in there and you'll watch me looking back and forth engineering this giant projects with a giant project with a thousand cuts it was three levels stairways hanging swings built in uh, flower flower beds and um, without a single piece of paper then I'd tell my dad okay he was my cutter I said this board has to be one hundred ninety two and a quarter inches. And and I and my dad is a genius. My dad was a worked uh, well. He was one of my my role models. But but I can't tell him or my wife what I'm going to do because I can't explain a thousand cuts. Yeah. What I'm doing is all in here. And so then we'd start putting it together. And then he watched this whole thing come together. He goes, "Now I understand what you say. What you were talking about doing." So that's uh, one of the ways that I use it. And probably the thing I use it all mostly uh, is like I want to remember phone number. I can write the number down in the air. I'll see it floating in the air, just like you'd see it on a computer screen. Hmm. My mind takes a picture of it, and I have what's called an eidetic memory, and then I just files away. Wow. And I, I, I bring it back up. Um, or uh, when I'm practicing with cards, I will, and I do this every time I'm at a restaurant or when I'm people, and I, I'll have the table, and I'm watching the move, and I'm analyzing something I'm doing, and I'll see it. And my mind will ge- create the image, and it's not flesh like you have. Right. It's more of a conglomeration of all kinds of, of um, geometric shapes or images to create the image of an arm, right. uh, the, the image of the cards. So it's not flesh and blood colored mm-hmm. the same way you would see it. But I will see the thing, the, the image of the, the constructed within my mind, uh, what I'm looking at. And then I'll analyze it, and I'll, and I'll be in the, and I'll see everything going on. Yet there's a solid object between me and what I'm looking at. Right. But yet here's the interesting thing: if I turn like this, can't do it. If you turn your head. If I turn my head, I have to be looking at the object. Like my medicine cabinet is an example. I have a friend who's a 
writer. He thought this was interesting. My medicine cabinet, I'm going, where is that Campophonique? Okay, and I see everything in my medicine cabinet. I'm going down, ah, there it is. And I'm seeing everything, yet the door's closed. Right. Okay, but now if I turn like this way, I have to see it by mind. I can't see it in front of me. Oh wow! Isn't that kind of interesting. That's fascinating. And uh, and uh, but anyway, so I I I consider it a, a, a real blessing that I yeah. have uh, this strange condition, and because uh, I use it all the time. Yeah. And uh, and I, like I said, I I, I consider myself uh, very very blessed. And and within seconds, you know, I, I can shake someone's hand, and I usually I can tell their height, weight. Um, uh, characteristics about them, and my mind will create an image of what I think they look like. And yeah. I, I'm sometimes I'm totally out in left field, but um, uh, it'll create own, my own uh, impression of that yeah. person. And then when they're talking, I will see some strange looking conglomeration, mouth moving, um, even though it's not necessarily flesh colored, but it, or flesh looking or human looking. But it's a representation. But it's a representation yeah, of movement and motion. Well, if you think about it also, uh, for those people who are sighted, I mean, what they are perceiving, they consider reality, but it's, it's they have their own lens, you have your own lens, mm -hmm. and it's, it's they're, they're both representations in a way, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to ask a few follow-up questions with the... The uh, eidetic memory, mm -hmm. the photographic memory, is that something that you had partially or fully before losing your sight, or is it something that was developed over time, a bit of both? It was something I had beforehand. Um, I remember when I was five years old in kindergarten, and we were finger painting class, mm -hmm. and I had a picture of a National Geographic image that I saw of a seascape. And so all these other kids are just doing their finger painting, their nose and their ears and their hair and their table. And I come up with this seascape. And, I, and to, this, to this day, what is it, 60 years later, so over 60 years later, I can still see the exact thing that I created yeah. 60 years later. And it was, you know, start off with the, you know, uh, the, the, the ground, and then I had seaweed. No, sorry, I touched your deck. <laughs> Forgive me. Okay. And seaweed going up, and there would be a, uh, in this corner I had a, a jellyfish with the things coming down, and a shark in the middle, and just different uh, things that I, that I replicated from an image I saw in a National Geographic uh, mm. book. And, uh, and, and so from, from ages five, six, seven, eight, I was the best artist in the school. Hmm. And uh, I could, like I said, see a picture, and I could pretty much replicate it. And and then the problem, and then when I, you know, nine, and I had scarlet fever, then I, I started losing that ability hmm. to paint and draw. With that. with um, that must have been that must have been really difficult, I would imagine. I mean, how. That was uh, very difficult, and that was probably where uh, some rebellion took place. Uh, I was shipped off to a special school where they had what was called a VH room back then, visually handicapped. Mm -hmm. And now you say visually impaired, you know, politically, much more polite than visually handicapped. And I hated the word handicapped, and I despised the word blind when I was, you know, had to go to the school. And my sister Lori, she only went there one year, and she got, she rebelled so much, she said, put me back in a regular school. She refused to continue to go. Uh, but my vision was worse than hers at the, at the time. And so I, she was able to get away with it. I was not. And um, 
so in the at the school, the best artist was a girl named uh, Sharon Coleman, mm-hmm. and she was the best artist. Where I was always the best artist at Naranka in first, second, third, fourth grade. Now all of a sudden, nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares. I'm Sharon. She's the one that does the best artwork. And uh, and so there was a guy in the VH department. There was about a dozen of us that. And we'd go to, it was a regular school, but they had a VH department, visually handicapped department. And one of the guys in the VH room was a guy named Ruben Corral, who, because he was from Mexico, uh, was like twice my size. And he was two, two or three years older than I was. But we were in the same grade because he didn't have the opportunity to go to special school. And uh, he would just scribble. He couldn't draw at all. So, and he got attention. Hey, look at that. Isn't Ruben's stuff good? So he got attention for just doing crap. And so I started doing crap. I started instead of showing my skills with the best I could, I, I started I started going the other direction and just scribbling. Although I did do one three-dimensional project um, that Dr. Um, uh, Sam Cumby, who was the te- teacher, um, I did a sculpture. And I still have it in my office, you can still see it today, of, uh, of a, 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 a Buddha monk and a bald head, and uh, and uh, anyway, and and it was all, um, what, what would the word? Um, uh, it was all properly proportioned, and, and, and I got A in that for that mm. project, and that's one of the few things that I do, I still have from that. But that was a three-dimensional thing. Why did you keep that? Because I got an A. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because it was actually I, not it, saying you shouldn't. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, because it, I did a. Good job, but here's that's a, also an astute question on your end because I there was other pieces I did, and uh, in high school I did a collage, and and I I was just rushing through my art class because I could I could do stuff and if you got seven and a half points you got an A, and I could have my art projects done within a, the first month of the semester, and I already got my A so I did I could mess around after that, and I did this one. Project and I don't even know what was to this day. I don't know what was so good about it, but we had a my t- teacher was uh, Mr. Swenis. His assistant, don't remember his name, but he went to San Diego State University. He took my art project and entered it into a statewide college competition, and it got first place. Mm. And he gave me the ribbon, the blue ribbon, for first place, and they just put it on display uh, in the hallway. Uh, at the at the high school, you know, under, on these those those slides with the locked doors, the right. locked windows, and they, and uh, and then when I said, oh, "Can I get my art project back?" and they went there, and it was it was gone, no mm. breaking, there was no glass broken, so we we figured the um, the student that claimed it to be his that entered it obviously uh, went off with it, hmm. but uh, but other projects after that, yeah. um, I started I would I'd get my A, build my project, you know, especially the three dimensional ones right. I was good at. And then I would, perf- I would purposely sabotage them because you fire them in a kiln. Yeah. And uh, and if you have uh, something that has air in it, it's completely sealed, it'll blow up. So I'd make my project, get my grade on it, and then when I'd go have it fired, I'd purposely put in either a, a ball of clay with a hole in it, right. with sealed air in it, or build something in it so when it was fired, it'd blow up. Why did you do that? Because I just I, I I was I was angry that I lost uh, I was lo- I was losing my vision and losing my ability to uh, paint and draw and, and so this was just one of the ways I was being ornery and uh, um, just rebelling against my 
my loss. So I would love to ask you about, and this is very, from the very first moment that I saw the documentary, I've, I've wanted to ask you about anger and mm -hmm. rage because um, one of my first thoughts um, upon watching the documentary, which was very emotional for me, to be honest, um, was that any woman who ever dates me should have to watch this movie because it'll give her a better understanding of how consumed in a different for different reasons, but consumed I was by anger, um, or driven by it at the very least. How did you, uh, how did you relate to anger, or what purpose did it serve for you then, and and how do you relate to it now? And well, that's a big question. So yeah, you can it break is, it up into any segments. Yeah, at the time, I, I try to just describe how I dealt with some of my anger, and that was self-destructive. And I got into other self-destructive behavior, and I it was the late 60s, beginning 70s, and so for about three years, drugs was a part of that as an act of rebellion. And, um, and, and, and purposely not trying to do my best. The only thing I did worked at, I worked at was cards. And uh, I would play cards with people, and I would... Uh, I take their money, <laughs> and, uh, and, we, and my drug my drug dealing partner named Doug Ferguson, who died from hepatitis from dirty needles, mm -hmm. and um, uh, he would have me he would have me play cards against other drug dealers, uh, to cheat them or trick them out of their money, and that's how we we supported ourselves and we, uh, well we, made our money to buy and sell, right, um, and so that was kind of. Uh, I, I, actually, that was kind of a power, the only power that I had. The rest of the time I was laughed at, um, uh, and, and there would be times where we would be doing something drunk, and then when I'd come, come out of a stupor or blur, they'd be laughing at me. Mm. And, uh, and, and they were, they were, at first they were the only people that accepted me, because you know, I was- This is the drug dealing the crowd. Drug, the drug crowd accepted they don't, uh, we don't care if you can't see, you know, come on over. And the, where the, the, the regular students were, were more discriminating uh, towards uh, some of us in the VH rooms. And, then, uh, and so the drug people, they didn't care, but then when it got right down to it, it was more of, I was more of a tool of, uh, of, their, of amusement for them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then, then I, I, I met a guy, and, uh, and, and now I'm gonna get off on another little tangent here. You know, it was a, you know, a verse in the Bible said, God created us in his image. And that always fascinated me, in his image. And so I thought, okay, I'm in the image of God. What did God take dirt and made a person? God took, God took dirt and made an eyeball. God took dirt and made a brain. God took dirt and made a bird. And, uh, and I, I remember watching an episode of, uh, of Kung Fu, and they said, who will teach me about the universe? The universe will teach you. And I, and I thought, well, that's like saying the wall will teach me. But who built the wall? The wall you know, who built the Statue of Liberty? It wasn't the Statue of Liberty, didn't build the Statue of Liberty. So then I started thinking, what, 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 uh, me in the image of God, okay, God created a bird, man took dirt and we created a jet. Mm -hmm. God took dirt, made I, we took dirt and made a camera. They're staring at us all over the place. Mm -hmm. God took dirt and made a brain. We took dirt 
They made a computer. What's the, the chip in a goose? Based sand, dirt. Just about everything in this room, in one fashion or another, came from dirt. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, that means I can create. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went another direction. I got heavily into the martial arts, started in 19, uh, March 5th, 1971. And uh, my karate instructor was a man named John Murphy. May I pause you for one second? You? So what precipitated that 90 degree turn or that 180? Was there a conversation or a particular day or mm -hmm. what catalyzed? What catalyzed that turn was I was with um, some friends and they wanted to watch a movie called Fantastic Voyage, which was a movie about shrinking down a, 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 a ship, a submarine, and then setting it into a guy's body to go into this. his heart mm -hmm. to try to fix it, okay? And they said, hey, the Fantastic Voyage is on. Let's get some angel dust and uh, watch the movie. And then they, and, and so I, I realized, I gotta stop this. And there was something out there saying, you need to stop it or you're gonna end up dead like Billy McComb. And I had a half a dozen, well, that's a dozen friends who've now OD'd and were dead. And, and I thought, I, if I don't stop this, I'm gonna be next. And I realized, I need some help. Anyway, so I went, to, I went to these people at this park, Wales Park, and I asked them if they had any angel dust. They said, we have something better. I said, what's that? They said, a relation with the creator of everything you see. I said, you mind if I sit down and tell me what you know? And they're the ones that told me that we're not here by accident, we're here by design, and that there is a creator. And so it was at that moment that wow. I said, I was going to uh, change my direction. Turn around. And, mm -hmm. and then you mentioned the martial arts mm -hmm. and, and uh, that John was, Murphy. That was, that was, that was, I'm a very, I can, every moment of my life is like a, a, a video. I can watch and pin in on every, any exact image or moment. And that was uh, February 13th, 71. You know, three weeks later, you know, March 5th, um, my brother, who was seven years younger than me, he was nine, and he was taking karate. And, uh, and I wanted to take karate because I was tired, of, I, was get, I would get beat up. I, I, I'll get off on a little tangent. I entered another uh, art competition when I was 11. And I, was, I had to have my nose like two inches from the canvas as I painted these three vases, vases with proper shadow lights coming in. It got first place. These two boys didn't like that this blind kid got first place and they called me Mr. Magoo. There was a cartoon out that time, starring Jim Backus, called Mr. Magoo. It was this kind of this goofy, sight-impaired person that just went through life jolly, uh, just missing trains and planes, trains, and automobiles, and that was me. And so they would say, they'd flip the bird in front of my face and say, hey, Magoo, how many fingers am I holding up? And while I was distract distracted, his friend picked the wallet out of my back pocket, and then dangled it in front of my face, said, hey, Magoo, got any money? And when I grabbed for my wallet, he then threw it over my head to his friend behind me in a cool game of keep away. And they kept, every time I turned around and grabbed it, they just keep going back and forth over my head. And then finally, one of them started literally slapping me across the cheeks with my own wallet saying, got any money, my blind boy? And the other kid jumped on my back, drove me to the ground, kicked me in the ribs, and they ran off laughing saying, thanks for the hot dog, Magoo. Because I had three dollars in there, for me three dollars was a that was all my entire life savings card play and everything all rolled up in three bucks, and so I was so upset about that. 
And uh, so that jumps forward to uh, uh, the martial arts. Is that where we want to head? And, um, uh, and, and, and at the, uh, anyway, so my brother was taking karate. And uh, so I, I wanted to go down. And they, they gave him warning. Well, you know, this guy can't see. And, and Murphy, he didn't care if you're blind, deaf, or dumb. He beat, he beat everyone the, equally. The he teacher. was my sensei. Mm-hmm. Sensei John Murphy. He was a year ahead of Chuck Norris. He was a class of 57. Norris was class, started in 58. And uh, he opened up, Murphy opened up his school in Tijuana in 1960. And he uh, was the first white guy, who was called white guy, Caucasian, he was Irish, to get a black belt in Japan um, in this particular system, Wadokai, which is a kind of a cross between Shotokan and Taekwondo, or, you know, it combines hands and feet. Where Shotokan, strict Shotokan, which is the number one style, was really basically mainly hands. Anyway, he, um, he said, "We'll we'll take him, we'll take him." And uh, at first, he told him, "Don't hurt him." And the girl, uh, first, and the girls, I'd get beat up by the girls. I'd be get beat up by the old ladies, ladies yeah. that we would know well who would be the driver, you know, old enough to be my mother. And uh, it was all I could do to keep from ending up on the ending up on the floor. And so I realized, okay. I gotta, uh, I gotta start getting better at this. And at that time, I weighed 110 pounds, and I had my full height of five nine. And Murphy said, "Okay, I want you to start taking. Uh, you need to start lifting weights because you got to put some meat on those bones." So I started punching, pushing weights, and I went to Gene Fisher's gym. And uh, Fisher, um, he held the world's record for the curl at that time, 1963. 221 pounds, uh, so 221 pounds <laughs> recorded and 226 unrecorded. And, and of course, he was in the 200-pound category. Yeah. And so at that time, I weighed 130, well, 130 pounds. I got up to 130 pounds. And at 130 pounds, I could pull down 220, and he would have to pull me down, lock me in, do my reps, lift me back up. I, could, uh, I was about 250 on the bench at that time at 130 pounds. And... Uh, um, uh, and, and then Murphy would say, push me to the point where I could do 500 push-ups in 12 minutes, 9 seconds, which is my record, but it usually was 500 push-ups, maybe 15 minutes, which um, was actually world, world-class time, the record of time. I don't think I could do 500 push-ups in 15 days. Yeah, I know that is a bluff on your end. Everybody out there that just listened to Tim say that, Tim is an athlete. Tim is probably just as crazy as I am. He's oh. being modest right now. I'm just telling you because he doesn't want to speak for himself. Listen to what I'm saying, everybody. Tim, I, I felt Tim out when we first got together. And, and I mean that in a nice way. I checked those forearms, his forearms. Popeye, I know jealous. Popeye, you're jealous. Olive oil, he's over here. Okay. So 500 push-ups, thank you for saying that. Yeah, and, uh, but, but average would be 15. Earning, earning the 20 that I slipped but, here earlier before the recording. The world record at the time was 1,900 an hour. So I was world, I was world class time, uh, you know, 15 in, uh, in one quarter of the time, uh, one fourth and a quarter of the time. So it was and then, um, and that's when I'd travel around with that uh, briefcase with 120 pound, 20 pounds uh, in dumbbells that would be broken apart, put it together on the road, do my exercises, and so on. Anyway, so then Murphy says, uh, you, okay, you need more weight. And so he said, tell me to take vitamins, vitamins every day. So I started taking vitamins. And he said, protein powders. So I've, from, for the past 50 years, almost 49 years, Every morning, I'd throw everything under the sun. I even throw my vitamin tablets in the blend and blend them up with uh, with uh, protein powder. And then I came up with uh, the best drink 
for if you want to, you have two choices, burn up or work out like a madman. And I call it liquid hell. All right. And what it is, you take water as your base. Yeah. And I'd put in Schiff's Brewer's Yeast, which really is tasty, tastes bad. Yeah. I put in half a banana for potassium and three to four to six jalapeno peppers. <laughs> Blend it up. And it, it, you had two choices. You either worked out or you just sweats just started pouring out your head. And my, my workout partner, Jim Blowers, who, who you probably saw in Delta, he was the one that was talking about riding on the back of my motorcycle, telling me where to go. And um, he said, uh, when he first started college, I, I said, okay, you have to have some liquid hell. And he, the first time he did it, he threw up the sink. And I said, you're not wasting that liquid hell. You drank the rest of that. And so he got it down, and, it, and, and he couldn't go through a final without having a, his liquid <laughs> hell because it stimulated his brain and his body. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> but it's not for sissies, I'll just say that. Anyway, so uh, that's what I would drink to, uh, to just boost the, the energy level. And uh, um, anyway, so I, I finally put on some weight, and then I remember 1980 is when I broke 100, uh, I broke 160, got up to 160 pounds. And then I kept pressing, and I got up to, I, I worked out with a, at a, a Doug McNoli, who was Mr. Universe, uh, at his place. And uh, um, he had, I got up to 340 on the bench. That's where I topped out at. And I weighed in at 168. And, and today, uh, when I got my first black belt, my first degree black belt, and Murphy wanted the hardest test, uh, and it was considered the hardest test at the time, you had to fight a 10-round bout with a fresh fighter each round, 10 three-minute rounds. And he didn't care uh, about, he didn't want to deal with lawsuits, so most of the testing and training took place across the border of San Diego and Tijuana. <laughs> and, uh, so that's where his school, he had to school yeah. in, the, in the States and another main Quick branch. Quick question for you. Mm-hmm. Is it true that you were offered an honorary black belt? Yes. Because and, I, and you did not accept? No, to get my first uh, belt, I had to fight one round, three minutes, and plus all the katas. And the thing about the katas, because of my eidetic memory, mm-hmm. I could memorize them in one day. Right. Yeah. And uh, in fact, when I got, I, I, uh, when I got my fourth degree black belt, I uh, had a six degree black belt kata that I learned in one day. The mm-hmm. guy who uh, went through it, and then the next thing he sees it on film, he goes, "I can't believe you did it. We just, you just, I just showed that to you." Blah blah blah. The, uh, just days before, you know. And for those people who don't know, a kata is a predetermined sequence of moves that you perform alone. Exactly. Doing punches, kicks, blocks, uh, counters, and yeah, it's, a, it's like a martial arts dance. Right. So a six-degree black belt kata would be like someone being shown a sort of extremely complex halftime performance at the Super Bowl dance routine and then being able to replicate it. Shortly thereafter. Perfectly, perfectly explained, exactly, Tim. And uh, so I, I get the katas and all that stuff down overnight, right, right off the bat. But it was the fighting because, to let you understand how I was seeing at the time, because I had some vision. At that time, my teens and 20s, my vision was measured at 20 over 400, 20 over 450, with no center vision, because my macula, which is the center of the eye, was gone. Yeah. Okay, so there's no macula. That's your forward vision. So if you just picture yourself, there's a hat in front of your face. Wherever I turn my head, there's a hat 
blocking that part of the vision, okay? Mm -hmm. With me? Yeah. Out of the corner of my eye was 24, 450. So 2200 is legally blind. Mm -hmm. 2050 is, you have to have at least 2050 to drive. So out of the corner of my eye, that's where I would see the images or shadows of my opponent. And so I'd always be looking at you like cockeyed. Too. I was wondering about that because I noticed that in the footage from the documentary. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, got right. it. So you're looking at your peripheral vision. Yes, because I had no forward vision at all. Right. And, uh, and that's how I know when I'm looking at people at that, at that time. Now I have no vision at all. Right. Uh, uh, but at that time, if I, if I couldn't see anything, I knew I was looking right at you. <laughs> Which was, <laughs> anyway, so um, because my so first, first belt yellow was one fight. Green belt, uh, I had five two-minute rounds, five bouts, five rounds two, with a fresh fighter, two-minute rounds. And uh, on a scale of one to 10, I trained, I practiced, I'd, and I thought, okay, uh, I figured it was gonna be a, maybe a four, five, or six. It turned out to be a 20. It was beyond my worst nightmare. Mm. And it was August 2nd, 1972, and it was over 100 degrees outside, and our dojo, was in Tijuana, as I said, and it was a solid block, brick, block, uh, cement block building. Yeah. No windows, no air conditioner, Ugh. not even a fan. Ugh. Wood floor, scratched up wood floor, and whenever they would have tests, all the, it was like blood sports, like cockfights. Yeah. And uh, so all the sadistic people would come out to watch whenever they hear that the gringos are gonna be coming up and there's gonna be some fights. And so John Douglas was testing for his black belt that day, and I was testing for my green belt. I was the, I was the, I was the pre-show before the big show. <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> the warm-up act. Well, I was the, I was the warm-up act, and so I get out there thinking, and 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 it was because we're all crammed into these little things. The humidity factor was in the in the 90s. Yeah. So before I even started, I'm pouring. <gasps> I was gasping for breath as soon as I did my first set of cotton. <gasps> Sounds then I did my defense terrible. moves. I was already gasping. And then I started my first round. And right before we started, Murphy's, the rule was we would respect each other's head. If you don't hit me in the head face, I won't hit you in the face. Body's open target, no limit. Mm -hmm. Okay, groin shots, everything. The way We would respect each other's knees. No knee shots. Everything else was open. If you hit me in the face, then the face becomes an open target. Mm -hmm. And so um, Murphy said, now if these guys start hitting you in the face, don't think about it. Just keep fighting. And at that time, I thought, what? I thought we were going to mark our shots to the face. And within the first three, first few seconds of the first round, bam, 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 three shots, bam, 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 right, right in my in face. face. And I'm going, oh, my God. They're, you know, they're, I'm, I realized I was fighting for my life because they didn't like us gringos down there. And everything was just set in, you know, discriminated against the, the black clan, which yeah. were the black fighters. Black Federation and, and, the, and, the, and the Mexican fighters and the gringos. Right. And, uh, and so, I, you know, the first round, I, and I'm just gasping for air. Second round, uh, this guy watched the Bruce Lee movie of Enter the Dragon, or no, it was before that, uh, Fist of Fury, where he does a step up heel hook, spins around with another heel hook, and I catch the one, like, wow, I blocked that, boom, only get nailed with the, with the other one coming around the other way. And third round, this guy would like knees, so I kept getting knees in the groin. Fourth round, um, the guy even stands, he switched stances on me, grabbed my front hand, went right by me, and bam, right in my left eye, caught an Orizuki, or right-hand punch, and, and pretty much knocked me out. And now, now I've seen nothing, I'm just seeing stars. And Mervyn says, wipe off the blood, don't think about it, keep fighting. And I'm just holding myself up against the bathroom, and I, could, I couldn't even hold my hands up because at that, by this point. 
And uh, so then the fifth round was probably my best round because I was really a standing, I was just a standing, I, I was virtually unconscious. And then they yelled, Rosemary, his wife yells, tempo, which means time in Spanish. Yeah. And the second she wrote tempo is when I hit the ground. <laughs> so I got it by one second. And then I was so exhausted <laughs> and have an asthma attack. I, I, I had to, I, now I had to stand up because I had to bow out. Yeah. As soon as I bowed out, I hit the ground again. Now everybody wants to congratulate me. I'd stand up again. <laughs> we weren't allowed to have water. And so I crawled to the bathroom. And John Douglas would tell this story. Murphy's probably going to be mad at me for telling it. And when he came to, he says, that's not the sink you're drinking out of. Oh. Right? That's the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I was drinking out of a T. John, a TJ toilet. Oh, T. Wanna toilet. And, uh, and I go, I don't care. I was so dazed. And I got gonorrhea. Oh, but, no. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so um, that was green belt. So then I, then the brown belt was 10 two-minute rounds. Yeah. And I managed that. And then, I, of course, on that one, I oh, I trained like a mad dog because I wasn't going to have that at last experience. So I made that. And then from brown to black was such a jump. It took me another 10 years before I was able to take on the 10 fighters. And just to give you a quick rundown of what my workout looked like to prepare for it, I'd warm up with a four-hour weight workout. Okay. Four hour. Four hour. And I would start minimum weight all the way up to maximum weight. And I'd do as many, I would get to the maximum. I'd lift as many times as I could with a few seconds, but as many times as I could. And then I'd slowly off just five pounds at a time from 300, from three, about 300 pounds, 395, uh, 295, 290, all the way down to uh, where I had just the bar, which was a 45 pound bar. And, uh, and, then, that, and then I'd do that with every muscle group. And then I would do 500 kicks on the heavy bag, you know, 10, uh, 10 roundhouse kicks with this leg, 10 with this one, 10, 10, do 100 of that. Then I'd do 10 side kick with this leg, 10 side kick with this leg, 10 side, another 100, 10 back turn kicks, 10 side, whatever, a step or cry side kick, but yeah. just did five different kicks 500 times. Then my uh, trainer, he would have a, it looked like a motorcycle seat, it was a bag, and he would hold it and, uh, and with his hand, and then I would have to do 100 kicks in three minutes. And so simulating the three rounds, so I just bam, 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 punch, kick, punch, kick, mainly kicking because that uh, that ex that exhausts your oxygen supply faster than punching. That's why in kickboxing matches you, they're required to throw a minimum of, of I think six kicks or eight kicks, and that's because after you start getting tired, you just want to punch. It takes a fraction of the oxygen does to take to lift these big muscles up in the air. And so I do that, and I take a, first I take a 10-second break, do another 100, 20-second break, 100, I do 1,000, I do it 10 times, it would be another 1,000 kicks. From there, I would do a five-mile run, and I lived in San Diego, and those, they had big hills there. And I would, one of the hills was a mile and a half down, mile and a half back up, and when I got to the top, I would sprint the distance of a house, and then run the distance, sprint, run, sprint. And then I would do 10, uh, quarter mile wind sprints, and then I'd throw up. And then I'd go do my shows, then I'd go perform, I'd perform at night. And then every other day, I would go rounds. You know, Murphy Douglas would have me uh, go, you know, two, uh, five rounds, you know, five rounds, building up to it, and sometimes two on one, because you don't have time to, to rest at that. And, but that's, that was, uh, and I, I sustained that particular uh, discipline for eight months, and Douglas said I overtrained. You know, I went too long, but my problem was asthma. Because uh, you know, uh, being asthmatic, uh, you know, if I uh, sometimes fear can trigger an asthma attack, and that's what happened on that green belt that I described. Uh, you know, and you can't fight if you can't breathe. 
And so I had to train my mind to not become afraid. You know, fear can paralyze. You know, we can be so worried about doing the wrong thing that we do nothing. Mm. There's actually an English proverb that says, a man that's afraid to make a mistake is unlikely to make anything. In other words, totally worthless. Fire the bum. <laughs> you know, fear of failure, when left unchecked, can actually lead to the failure we fear. Yeah. And so um, I, I just started, like I said, putting myself in con- positions and conditions to help my mind overcome those effects. And I did things, uh, I, we just talked about the physical. I did mental things like <laughs> eating live cockroaches, live grasshoppers. The most absurd things, rotten fish guts that sat in the sun for a week to, uh, in Del- you saw the, where I ate the, I chopped down on the eyeball of the mahi-mahi. And the thing is, if you don't have, if you, if you can't take it, you know, the person would throw up. Yeah. And some people that were watching almost throw up. One, <laughs> one of them, when I did the guts, they did throw up. Don't and try this at home, kids. Don't try this at home. <laughs> this but is it was, a close track with a trained professional. Yeah, it was, but it, it was just to train my mind to be able to take whatever is being dished out. And if I can control my mind and body, then I, I can make it. And, and, and that triggers another thought real quick. I'm going to uh, go back to the Charles Bonnet syndrome, Charles yeah. Bonnet, and how, how that can create strength. One of the ways I use it the most, and we haven't even mentioned, is in training. As what I, um, I can do tremendous numbers of reps. When I took my fourth degree black belt test, I was in my late, four, I was 47 or 48. I lifted 222,888 pounds using 3,190 reps. And the 24-year-old 220-pound black belt who trained alongside me could not do 50% of the number of reps or weight. And that's because I don't get lactic acid buildup because I would combine the mind with the body. Now you'll see weight, people do this, they'll say, you know, they're trying to convince their body to do it. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. When you combine mind and body together, they're not doing that. And what I would do is when I'd get to the point of exertion, and I would then transfer, I'd use my VCBS, like on a a bench press. I would see a cable on the bench press. I'd see a cable going up, across of it, across two pulleys. On the other end is this gorilla-shaped thing, or an Arnold Schwarzenegger and gorilla together, pulling on that thing, pulling that weight up. And I would focus on that image, pulling the weight up. And during that moment, I would no longer feel the stress as my muscles continue to press. Hmm. And I have exercises for every, I have a mental visually exercise I'll use for each exercise, like the quadricep extension. You know, you're, you're in exertion when you're straightening your legs, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I would see in front of me is a big giant rubber band. When the brand is stretched down, when the, when the weights are down, and then it would, the, it would, when the, it would, the rubber band would go up and it would just go wide, and that's when it's pulling the weight up. So I'd watch it, and I would see it pulling the weight up. So when I'm doing the exertion is when I'd feel it the least. Or another image, like when I'm doing a, a hammer, like I'm on my back doing a tricep, I would see a hammer falling, okay? And when the hammer's falling, is the least amount of effort, right? Because yeah. the hammer, the way the hammer's going down, but when I'm like this, so I'd see the hammer falling, and but that's, that's when the tricep is being engaged. Yeah. And I taught my wife, I, uh, when I taught my wife this, and, and within a month's time, what she would do, I'd say, well, look at yourself in the mirror, your reflection. And when you get to the exertion, like a, like a bench, uh, a military press, yeah. at the point of exertion, so you're at, you want to do, we always do sets of 52 reps. 
And when you get to 48, then transfer that, see that image of that reflection, pulling those weights up. And then, and she got to the point where she increased her muscular endurance 30% in a month time, and she was already in top shape. That is so and, and, and right now, I could give you an example of that if, you, if we were standing, if we wanted to stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like, I, and of course, now I'm almost 66. So I don't know if I, I, I used to have a, a demonstration that I would do where I would bend the arm of the person and that is not, there's only one person's arm I was not able to bend in do, doing this demonstration for 40 years and no one has ever bent my arm. But if you want to stand up, I can, uh, I don't know if this is. Sure, is, let's uh, try it. So, but I'm not going to try to bend your arm because, I'm, because of surgery. Oh. Just get on this side of me. All right. And see, you, look at those muscles. <laughs> now, and usually I put myself up against a back, so I'm pinned in. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to have you put your hand, arm right here. Okay. Your other arm here. Yeah. Okay. Not on the wrist. I want to put wrist. And and your job, you just, you just, this is what you, all you're going to do is just okay. bend this little elbow here. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. And look, I'm not. I'm yes. not using. Go. Come on. Come on. It's not going to happen. I'm not. And I'm not doing any. I'm not using yeah. any strength at all. Look at my hand. Yeah. yeah. Totally relaxed. Yeah. Now I'll tell you how I did it. Okay. It's, it's, once again, it's creating mind and body together. What I did is I envisioned my arm as a fire hose. Yeah. Shooting out that fire hose is a thousand gallons of water a minute. You can't bend a fire hose, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right? If you're thinking about a fire hose when the, fire's, yeah. when the water, water's shooting, you're not gonna bend a fire hose. So I get that image in my mind, I'm just shooting that fire hose and, uh, and I've never had anyone ever bend my arm and yet, yeah, without that, until I showed them, they get, they learn how to do that. Then I kept in their arm. But before, but anyway, that's just kind of a little side side note. But how I've used my CBS yeah. to uh, create a lot of strength, and I also used it in my training with the cards mm. when I would train when I when I analyze moves and break them down, and and what I would do. I, I'm, I'm just kind of transitioning yep. into something else here randomly. But what I would do. And why I was able to put in so many hours is I would analyze the move. So okay, I want to I want a second deal a certain way. So I'd analyze the move. Okay, okay, I want the I want the I want no leaking. And so I'd analyze what I want to do, and I'd practice it in slow motion till every exacted element of the muscle memory was firmly embedded in my brain. Okay, then I would turn it into a subconscious habit. We all have uh, habits where we're Tapping the pen, right? Yeah. Tapping our feet. That's idle energy wasted. It's like the, an engine of a car running, going nowhere, just idling. idling. That's and still energy expelled, right? So what I did is I turned, I learned to take all that energy and funnel it into just my hands and what's in my hands. And so that's why I, I would take it and I turned it into a subconscious habit. And that move, I would then sit there and practice it th- hundreds of times. Uh, I do it. I'll, thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times. Then maybe two or three years later, I'll look down and we'll go, by golly, I got it. And then, and then some of the things Vernon would say, that's not possible to do. And, 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 and so I would figure it out, analyze it, show it to him, and then, and then he'd go, I don't understand how you can do that. <laughs> well, what I loved discovering in the process of prepping for this conversation, and I want to put a button in the black belt test in a second, but that Vernon would describe to you the ideal of how something would be performed, even though 
uh, in reality, he hadn't seen it executed that perfectly. And you, with your powers of visualization and the way that you would digest his teaching, would then go and develop the ability to do what he thought could not be done. At least that's, that's my understanding. That's exactly right. And, and he did that for, I had the privilege of being with Professor Vernon for 17 years. In those first five, six, 10 years, like you said, he would describe to me, he said, Richard, this is the way it has, this has to be done. Your hands have to be natural. You don't want this deep grip when you're going to deal a second or a bottom. Your fingers need to be on the sides because it's more natural. That's more the way you're gonna see a gen, uh, your, your general person in the public hold a deck of cards. And so you don't wanna create any unnatural suspicion by your actions. And so he would tell me, okay, you have to be able to do it with those fingers on the side. And so, okay, fingers on the side. And you don't want, you don't want uh, any of this action here. So, so I'd practice with my hand on the table uh, without moving it. And so I would take the pieces, what he said, and I would practice it. And he, he would actually tell me, he'd say, he'd say, feel my hands. Feel the position my hands are on. I would feel his hands, okay, got it, got it. Okay, oh, okay, I got it. So I'd see the picture in my mind of what his hands were showing me but he never did it because it's an action. I really couldn't see him do the action because my hands were getting in the way of him executing the action. Right. But I knew the action of what he was showing. So in my mind, I would see his hands, visualize what he said, this is the way it should be done. And then I would come up with it and create it. And then the next time he would see me, he'd go, Larry, Larry, come on, watch this, Larry, watch this. Look at this, watch this action, perfect action. You know, he'd get all excited. He'd have all the other card guys come over and, it was a perfect rhythm, perfect rhythm. Anyway, Larry was one of my critics at the time. But we became a good friend. Same with Tony Giorgio. Yeah. And, um, uh, but so that's what he would do is he'd trick me. And it was only until years later that he told me he made them up. <laughs> he just wanted to see what this obsessed kid would come up with. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and that's why my work is kind of, as most, 99.9% uh, .9 of the gamblers and cardmen out there will tell you, it's, it's unique and separate from the way any other person uh, handles the cards. And I, I, I want to tie up one, one loose end with the black belt test just to flash forward because we, we covered a lot of it, but 10 fresh fighters, 10 rounds, you end up with a broken arm uh, at, at some point. Third, seventh round. In the seventh round, so you're fighting with a broken, a broken arm. There's footage of this, of course, in the documentary, which I encourage everybody to see and you get your black belt. There was coverage of uh, this experience. Of course, there were, there were some cameras, but also there was a piece in, was it the LA Times? LA Times. Now, why did you, my understanding is you did not, you did not like the piece or you did not like the headline. Why is that? Well, because they used the word blind man earns black belt. And at that time, I was very stubborn. And um, I was just stubborn and probably self-absorbed and I wanted my work to stand on its own. And I wanted to earn it the way Terry Crook, John Douglas, and the other, his top other black belt uh, fighters did. That's why when they offered me an honorary black belt, he, says, he said, you put in your time, you put in your lumps. I said, no, I want to do it the way you did. And then that's when I started the training, like I described earlier, but it took me 10 years, and, or 13 years and three months and five days from when I started to when I finally got it from beginning to super nuts. And, um, but anyway, um, um, 
the fact that they had to put the word blind man earns black belt, it, to me, it was like, you know, I don't like the theme, handicap makes good. I want the theme, okay, I just made good because I did it. And, it, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, I kept telling people, I wanted to do it the way they did it. And people would say, but you didn't. And i go, yes, I did. And it was literally, Tim, within the last six months, that someone said something that I understood what they said. When they said, I didn't do it the way they did it, I did it way, the way they couldn't have done it. Yeah. They weren't sight impaired when they did it. I was. I never understood what they were saying because I was so pig-headed about <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to do it the way they did it. But then when you flip it, I, I, I finally got the message. I did it in a way that, that they, it was very unlikely that they or anyone else would have had a, a hard time doing it if they could have done it at all. Oh, probably uh, next to impossible, if not impossible. Yeah, and yeah. I want to dig into the visualization because it seems to be such a superpower. And I might ask you what you consider to be your superpowers, but this, this, this visualization and the CBS mm -hmm. and the uh, eidetic memory that you mentioned really seem to coalesce to give you some incredible abilities, uh, whether that's the feats of strength or work with the cards. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the way you see things when you're scanning or planning the construction, the design and construction of a three-story uh, patio or deck, for instance, is different from dreaming. And mm -hmm. so that begets the question, what is dreaming like for you? Ah, very good, very good question. Because, uh, you know, like, like you were saying, I see my subconscious in external space. So, um, you know, and it's just a constant uh, stagnant situation of all these colors, patterns, just there mm -hmm. until I want to bring them into play. And it doesn't matter if it's day, night, if my eyes are open or closed, I see the exact same thing with my eyes uh, covered up in a vault. Uh, I'll see these vivid bright colors when there's absolutely no way of light getting in. Mm -hmm. Now when I dream, in my dreams, I'm never sight impaired. And I see, I dream in full color with audio and visual, and I see perfectly. And everybody I see in those dreams is perfectly clear. Hmm. Which, I, you know, that, that uh, someone brought that to my attention in some questions that I was asking. And, uh, and I thought, well, I, I guess that's kind of unusual. But yeah, I'm, ne uh, I, I'm never, like I said, part of the dream is never that I'm part of uh, sight and prayer, nor do I see any of the CBS. Mm -hmm. the uh, symptoms in any of my dreams. Mm -hmm. Now, if I wake up in the middle of the night, say, um, and I had to take some Tylenol or something uh, from some surgery, I've had 24 surgeries from all my high-impact living, and um, medication, when I wake up, will turn everything into a metallic colors, and usually, a lot of times, it's purple. This is if you wake up in the middle of the night. M middle of the night, on, after taking some kind of medication from some kind of a in injury that I'm uh, on. Medications turn it metallic, and it turns it uh, usually a purple, which is not, it's not a pretty purple to me. I, mm. I don't like it. You mentioned maroon was one of your favorite colors. Mm -hmm. And then royal blue on the blue spectrum. What other favorite colors do you have? And did you have them before losing your sight, or did you develop them afterwards? Uh, I probably wasn't aware of 
uh, favorite colors before. Right. Um, so much as I am now because I see them all the time and, and the, the different shades depending on the time of year, depending on the particular day. Uh, sometimes it's just really vivid blues and I just, it's just beautiful sometimes when I'm out walking with my beautiful wife, Kim, and uh, I, my, my CBS will create a skyline, okay? In other words, the things will be darker here, and I, like the, that's the skyline, and then it'll be lighter uh, shades mm-hmm. to cre- give the image of a, you know, earth, s- s- sky, okay? And then, and then I go in, and I have to ask my wife, is it still light out? Because it it, uh, it will stay there, and sometimes it's late into the night, and I can't get that the I can't get whatever. Sometimes it does can bother me because I want that to go down because it's now nighttime. Um, so there are there are some uh, times that it will be a bit on the distracting side. Mm. What uh, I have as a note to ask, I didn't want to get any of the details beforehand, but a note to ask you about your experience of wind. Ah, that's a but I, I can see the wind blow. Whenever I'm walking down the street with my with, with Kim or whatever, if the I, of course I automatically see uh, the images of of trees, but they're more like clouds, and they and they'll be green shapes and uh, colors to to replicate or give the image of, of trees. Okay, but whenever the wind blows, everything, all my all my visualization things that I see will go with that wind. They will gust. If it gusts, they'll move a little bit more. I, if I do this, everything just now just went. Oop, if you tap, jerked, the side, if, if you I tap my tire side, tire side of the head, you, it, everything just jerked over and went back straight. It's just weird little things, like when I go in, and I'm in a pool. My eyes are closed the whole time. I know I don't have need to need, need my eyes open when I'm swimming. I don't have to worry about the chlorine and stuff. Right. And so when I'm above the pool, there there's a, a certain hue, in other words, a, a level of brightness of the color. When I go under the water, I actually see myself going underwater, and the hue changes. They it deepens like putting on sunglasses. Right. Uh, sunglasses off. Sunglasses on. And even as I made that image, my eyes are closed. I just all of a sudden things went darker and lighter. I can pretend that I'm opening and clo- when I open and close my eyes, it will the hue is like I'm pulling down a shade that has a, a, a sunblock, not right. a sunblock, but like a sunglasses shade. would yeah. be the best way to describe the. So it, it, the hue changes, and then now if I just pretend that I'm, my eyes are closed the whole time, I'm pretending I'm opening and closing my eyes. It'll do the same thing. And, I don't know what relevance that had to anything, but it's just these little games. You know, this is just a conversation between friends. Nobody, <laughs> nobody listening or watching. And so I'm just following my own interest. And I want to talk about uh, the enjoyment of not relaxing. That's more said uh, with a smile. But when we took a little break to have some water, uh, you said, to me, relaxing is not relaxing. And you talked about how be, being told to relax or asked to relax is like being punished and put in the corner for misbehaving at school uh, for you. In that case, given your obsessive compulsive dedication to training, to card mechanics, to uh, movement, how do you replenish? How, what, what activities do you find recharge your batteries? And maybe you could just elaborate on to me relaxing is not relaxing. Okay, yeah. 
uh, and I'm going to bring up a friend of mine who's like a brother. His name is Luke Corum. Mm -hmm. He was the director of the film Delt that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll just say something quick about the film. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for Luke, in particular, probably I say 80% Luke, and then Bradley and Russell, the producer and the writer, but Luke was the one that just had the creativity. If, if, I, if, they would have if they would have listened to me, and they listened zero to me, <laughs> they did, uh, that I would have screwed up the film. Mm -hmm. the, the brilliance of that film is I, I lay at the feet of the director, Luke, and he would tell me, and he actually lived with me. He had his own place in my house when, at, at certain times, Luke's room, and I never have, my, many times, I didn't know the cameras on or off, and he would say, well, let's chill. You know, and, uh, you know, which I found out was a word for relaxing. And chill? I don't want to chill. What is, what is it's this not chill? fun. And I said, <laughs> relaxing? For me, relaxing is not fun. Relaxing is like when I was a kid and I was being punished. And my, my parents, as a punishment, I'd have to stand in the corner for an hour and just stare at the corner. To me, chilling is not fun. Chilling, relaxing is not fun. To me, relaxing is adventure. And I, I would tell people, and I, I'd tell Luke, I'd say, don't worry about the end result. When the film is done, it's going to be a piece. It'll be what it is, and it will be finished. Enjoy the journey. Okay? And look at every obstacle and every challenge and every hurt and pain that you come across as part of the adventure of the journey. When you read a book, you don't want a book that, oh, he went and he entered this uh, rest any one, and then he entered that one. No trouble, one, and he climbed this mountain, and he won. Uh, that's boring. Yeah. You have to have antagonists, protagonists, and you have to have challenges. You have to have things that you have to overcome. So I would tell people, whatever the situation is, look at it as part of the adventure. I, my livelihood almost came to an end five years ago. Well, multiple times. Like I said, I've had. 24 surgeries. I had to recount them just last week. Going, am I at 23, 22, 23, or 24? I realized I've had I have two steel knees from all the years of kicking. I took a shot here, roundhouse kick here. And at first, I did surgery and finally had to be replaced. And just you know, millions of kicks just finally did them in. I've had five hernia surgeries. I've had I did a backflip off my front porch, landed on my fifth disc on my on my back on the brick, drove it out my belly button. I've had three back surgeries, and. Uh, and then fortunately, what finally, and they, and that's so complicated, they just, doctors, it's just, they have a hard time with backs. And then I, they have this thing called a neural stimulator Medtronic makes. And I have that, and it short circuits the pain from the back to your brain. Amazing. Ever since that, like my wife said, give our life back. We have, we have this table available, we have some cards. Uh, would you like to like to show anything sure. or do anything? Oh yeah, you have a deck of cards there for yourself, right? I do. Shuffle them up. All right, we'll see this how how amateur the shuffle can be here. Yeah, you just I can barely you... shuffle with two hands. Well, then use one. Yeah, I just showed you how. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, we're good to go. Switch decks with me. All right. Okay. Here you go. Now. In poker, you've heard of like wild cards, like deuces are wild. Uh, baseball have multiple wild cards. Yes. Other games, so just cut a card, that'll be the wild card. Just cut off half the deck. I'm gonna move, there's one card left over oh, here. Oh yeah, I can put, move, please put, put it on my deck? Or? Yes. Yeah, all right, there we go. Okay, just cut the deck in half here. All right. Tell me when you got it. Don't okay, and just to make it more random, just say any random number, three, four, five, seven, anything you want. Six. Six. One, two, three, four, five, six. What's that card? 
queen of diamonds. So the queens will be the wild card, okay? Now you just shuffle these cards, right? I did. Now have you ever played poker for money? And let me ask this. Have you ever played in a casino? Or have you ever wondered, when I, I play in a casino, I am have, I getting conned? I have lost in a casino. Okay, so that, <laughs> that thought has crossed your mind. Am I getting conned? Yeah. Now, I'm going to show you. You just hand me a randomized deck, and I'm going to do this in an interesting way. In the high-state games, I'll cut between every shuffle, because that buries the top and bottom halves of the deck. I'll give the deck a little riffle, and they will, people like to cascade the cards into them. Give a cut. So I'm telling you what I'm doing as I do it. And I shuffle. Mm -hmm. Did everything look legit? Looked legit. And not a move you saw was. So you're already in trouble. Now I'll show you. <laughs> I'll show you. Not a move I saw. Was, was honest. Not a one. Okay. Not a one. Now I'll show you how fast I could uncut that deck. What's that card? That is the two of clubs. The two of clubs. So they'll pass the deck to the right to be cut. And now the deck is no longer cut. So two still on top. <laughs> watch again. Now watch again. I'm showing you how fast I can uncut the deck. The deck is no longer cut. Yeah. Now it was about a half a second. Yeah. Now, you've heard of Texas Hold'em. I have, yeah. Okay, well, we'll deal a hand of Hold'em. And in Hold'em, they have what's called a cut card or a burnt card. They put a card, the deck on a face-up card. Now, after the fact, you're gonna tell me, keep everything off the table here, give me a full okay. table here. All right. After the fact, you're gonna tell me how many people step up to my Hold'em table. Let's pick a number five or six, because we don't have a lot of room. Uh, five. Five players. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, burn. And we have what's called the flop. And what are those three cards? You got the King of Hearts, the Two of Hearts, and the Queen of Clubs. And the deuces are not wild, but we did see the Queens was your card. Mm -hmm. So that means there's a pair of kings on the table. There's a burn and a turn. What's that card? That's a king of Burn and turn. So right now we have three kings because the queen is a wild card. What's that card? That's a queen. Right now we have four kings. Let's get rid of our burn card. And you're my partner sitting over here in hand number five. Let's see what you have in the pocket. What's that? That's a queen. What's that? That's a queen. So in the poker, you would have uh, five of a kind, five kings, or you'd have a, a royal flush, uh, depending on how you wanted to play the hand. In other words, you killed them, yeah. slaughtered them, beat them, <laughs> whipped them big time. Okay. Amazing. Now, shuffle that deck. Okay. I'll, do, I'll, I'll show you how far I can push the envelope. All right. So I'll shuffle this one. And I think I think we got two cards. And they got turned up on that one. Okay. Um, That's your job. You make sure right. that one's all legitimate. Yep. Okay. And then right. I'll switch with you. Alright. There we go. Okay. Alright. And you can make sure everything's legitimate on that one. Yep. Alright. We'll give the deck a cut. And we'll play my favorite game, Seven Cards Done. And all this right. will take a couple minutes to unfold, but it's interesting. Now, we have a deck of cards shuffled by Tim. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll say with the same number of players. Well, let's, you choose four players or five. You choose. Four. Where do you want to sit? Number one, number two, number three, or number four? I'll be number one. Number one, right out of the chute. I'm getting ready. To, I'm dealing a card in slow motion to hand number one. Mm -hmm. Before I continue, take these deck, this deck, uh -huh. mix them up. Don't give me the whole deck back. Just pull out any random part of that deck and put them in my hands. Just do something quick and just, just put a, a stack. Just a couple of cards. No, well, more than a couple, but enough to get around. Just a stack. Okay. So I'm going to work with whatever you give me, okay? Tim just handed me back a random stack of cards. We're playing, dealing a card to play on hand number two, player number three, and player number four. You're number one. Slow motion. Watch carefully. There's your card. And we go player two, three, four. Now we have what are called the door cards, which means the face-up cards. What's that card? Jack of spades. Jack, one, player two, player three, player four. You're number one. What's that card? 
Ace of clubs. Number two, number three, number four. You're number one. What's that card? Ace of diamonds. Oh, here, mix them up. Mix them up. Mix them up some more. Mix up the entire deck? Whatever. You're the boss. Okay. And just have any part of that deck you want. So you're doing everything you can to screw things up. <laughs> okay. And you just, okay. That's like five cards less than the last time you had me. Okay. We have player two, player three, player four. And so far, we have three cards faced up. Yes? That's right. Mm -hmm. And what's that card? It's Queen of Diamonds. Wild card. What, do, do it again. Mix them up. Have any part of the deck you want. So you're shuffling, cutting. Mm -hmm. You choose how you chose how many players. You chose where you want to sit. You hand me any random part of the deck. Oh my gosh, getting stingy. Down to six cards. Player two, player three, player four, and we have what's called down and dirty. I'm now dealing a card off the top to to uh, Tim's first position. Two, three, four. Put that with the rest of the stack. Okay. Now let's see what you have in your hand. We're playing seven card stud. High Chicago. That means high spade and the whole splits the money. All right. So let's see what you have. What's that card? Queen of diamonds. That's a queen, a wild card. So we'll put it over here in the, what's that? Ace of diamonds. That would be a pair of aces because the queen's wild. What's that? Ace of clubs. That equals three aces. What's that? This is a jack of spades. Jack. What's that? That's a 10 of spades. 10, 10, jack, ace. What's that? That is the queen of spades. Another wild card. So right now you have four, two aces and two queens, right? That's right. Okay. So you right now, in, in, that would equal four aces. In the best possible hand in wild card is five aces. We're playing high spade and the whole splits the pot. What's that? That's <laughs> ace. Ace of, ace of spades. Ace. Five aces. The best possible hand you can get in poker is five aces. You shuffled. You cut. You chose how many players you wanted, you chose where you wanted to sit, and you me kept mixing them up, yeah. and you didn't even give me a full deck. So you could honestly say, that Turner doesn't play with a full deck. <laughs> that Turner does not play with a full deck. That's and yet amazing. I dealt you the perfect can in poker. <laughs> that's so, incredible. Okay. That's regrettable? It's incredible. Oh, that's better. That's yeah, better. yeah, yeah, incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. Oh, man. That's regrettable. Amazing. But that shows you how far I can yeah. push. And that particular thing to be, mm -hmm. I, and I know this, I, and I don't mean to sound boastful, because it's hard to talk about when you're asking people, asking questions about yourself. It's hard to talk about yourself and not sound bad. Um, but Vernon, when he first saw me do that, I said, Professor, what do you think about combining this and this and this? And he goes, Roger, you can't do it. It's not, not possible. It can't, it can't be done. Yeah. And I said, oh. He said, he said, you can't do it because three reasons. One, your brain can't res re respond that fast. Your hands cannot be that sensitive, and you would break rhythm. Put, yeah. those, put those all cards back together from this deck. Okay, he said, that's not possible. And I, I were at the Magic Castle, and for 10 minutes, I sat there. He was sitting at the bar, and I was standing next to him, and I was depressed. For 10 minutes, I sat there and go, this is the ultimate. This is the perfect way. This is the, and I thought, and he said, it can't be done. And then all of a sudden I remembered, but I can do it. I said, Professor, come watch my show. <laughs> and he came out of the show after he goes, Roger, what the hell are you doing on now? I don't understand what the hell you were doing. I said, remember when you said you can't combine this and this? That's what I'm doing. I don't understand how the hell you can do that. And he goes, Max, Max, come here, watch this, watch this. And everybody, for the next 18 months, every time I was there, he'd have me shuffle the cards. How many players do you want? Where do you want to sit? Watch this, watch it, and he, over and over. And two years later, he goes, still don't understand how you can do that. <laughs> and, and he knows exactly what I'm doing and exactly how I'm doing it. Yeah, that's amazing. I, uh, I, so I have uh, these, all the cards are facing the same way. They're, I 
I guess two decks worth of cards. I don't yeah, know don't how mean, they're split up. Yeah, we'll but just that's, keep 52-52 is the same. Great, great. <laughs> <laughs> so good, who knows how many? Who knows? Roughly, roughly 52 over yeah. there, I suppose. All right. Oh, wonderful. So you, now you, uh, just, just because this was mentioned before we start recording, you uh, audit cards. Is that well, right? Uh, well, I'm, uh, or you, uh, what's analyze. the right term? Analyze. I, 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 yeah, I, U.S. Playing Card Company is the largest uh, maker of cards in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just merged with uh, Card of Monday, which is the biggest card maker. They've been starting making cards 18, 1765, and U.S. Playing Card Company since 18, they've been around for, for, for 150 years. Mm -hmm. And Bicycle is the most recognized pack of cards in the world. Mm -hmm. It has been for over 100 years. And... In 1988, I got some cards. They were so bad. I told them, these are not the cards you've been making. I can prove prove that you are subcontracting your paper out, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they signed a rep. I proved it. And they said he was proven right. Then in 1993, they started miscutting their cards by turning the things over. I said, these are not the cards you've been making for 100 years. I can prove it. And at that time, they were getting flack from the casinos because their card, the casinos were not... not uh, happy with the cards. There was something wrong with them. And I'm the one that identified the problem. And, uh, and that was the blade was going through the wrong side of the card, which affected the integrity of the card and the, the ability for it to, to, to properly be, be handled properly. And uh, so then they finally put me on retainer in the 1990s. And uh, they, I helped them make the best card in the world. And they do make the best cards in the world. And, and uh, just to give you an idea how far uh, the, their director of research and development would push me. He would send me out, okay, usually it was two dozen decks or like 20 decks, yeah. but I'll make it real small so you can understand. Let's say six decks. Okay. So there's, it would be, if it was two dozen, it'd be, there would be 12 pairs, okay? Mm -hmm. 12 pairs. So we reduce our, our illustration to down to six, six decks. There's three pairs. And one of the decks... Three pairs of decks. Three, three, three pairs, yeah. yeah. Six cards, six decks, yeah. which is three pairs. Yeah. Okay, so we're down to six decks, which would be three pairs. And then when I say pairs, um, each, the, 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 each pair was ran together. That was a particular run of that deck. Okay. Okay, and so they would, they would say one of the decks, they just changed... One of the chemicals in the coating, this is probably the, the most elaborate one that I did, yeah. just one of the chemicals was changed, not the whole chemical, not the whole process, one of the chemicals was changed in their coating. And so not only did I have to say uh, deck one and three are a match, two and four are a match, and five and six are a match. Uh -huh. And it was five and six that had the chemical change. And so not only did I, and, and they had those cards coded, when I say coded, they had a, a, a secret code, like Q752916J, which that was their key in Cincinnati to understand these two are the pair, these two are the pair, these two are the pair. I did not have the key. Right. You know, but I just had these random numbers that I'd put down in my report. My son Asa would tell me, well, this one, Dad, is J752. This one is uh, 67J4, and which meant absolutely nothing to me. And then I'd find out the 67J4, and they, they were the match, and so I'd have to pair them up, match them up, and then analyze the snap, the, the embossing depth, the cut, the caliper, um, the, what I call the right period, and all these things, and which one is a better card. And to help, and they would take that information and fine tune their machines to uh, help 
you know, make the cards that, uh, that, uh, that, that they make, which are by far the finest cards you can buy. They're now in use. Yeah. So I know we have um, just a little bit of time left, um, and uh, we're practically neighbors since you're in <laughs> San Antonio. Right. We're, not, we're, not we're very, very close by. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, and this, uh, this, this is sometimes a difficult question, but um, I'll just I'll ask one or two more questions. Um, if you could put a message, a quote, anything non-commercial on a billboard to get a message out to millions or billions of people, is there, is there anything that comes to mind that you might put on that billboard? Yeah. In, the United, in America, we have opportunities. Success depends upon the use we make of those opportunities. Hmm. That would be one. Another would, would be not going down. Not going down. Not going down. <laughs> Another one would be um, consider every obstacle, as I mentioned, every obstacle, challenge, hurt, pain in your life is part of the adventure of life. That's what give life, gives life spice. Hmm. You know, we, uh, oh, and then and circling back to um, when I was talking about the surgeries right. and I, my career was almost at an end, I was at Penn and Teller's Theater, I was going to be on their show, uh, their fourth season and the third season, and I was in the gym, the real gym, where else, with my friend Doug Gorman, and uh, I said, okay, I paid $17 for my workout, and uh, that's a ridiculous workout price, and so I was, I, as soon as I got in there, one of those benches that you set them up, 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 up like, like this, to, like you're doing standing curls, right. or you, know, you sit in your curls, or you can recline it back for like tri, you know, triceps, or lay it all the way back, like you want to do sit-ups on there. Right. Or, or adjustable dumbbell. bench. Yeah, adjustable mm-hmm. bench. And it was propped like this. At about 45 at degrees. A, yeah, at 45 degrees. And I couldn't, I pulled that pin, I couldn't get it to go down. And I felt up, it was butted up against the wall. And so I took that bench and I moved it over like this and wham, my thumb was here and, and it was you know, those commercial grade oh, benches, God. the steel bars that went right around here and the steel bars that, that was the frame of the bench just came down and crushed my thumb. What did I do? I know he's crazy and your people that are listening and watching say, yeah, he's a little on the crazy side. And oh, okay. Don't let me get off track on here. But did you know I'm a I'm, I'm a certified oddball? A certified oddball. I am certified. I did, I did see your card. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'll explain. You've heard of Ripley's Believe It or Not, right? Yes. Uh, in 1984, I was on the TV series Ripley's Believe It or Not, hosted by Jack Palance. I'm also an exhibit in the second largest Ripley's in the country, and I'm in the 2015 issue of Ripley's Believe It or Not Book of Eye Popping Oddities. Right, received a certificate. <laughs> certified. I am a certified oddity. So you might be an oddball, Tim. I'm certified. You're certified. I'm a certified oddball. Okay, so, so, this, so this contraption so, so comes crashing down. I crushed my thumb, and I called Doug. I said, bring me a bucket of ice and don't ask any questions. And I figured I saved $17 for this workout. I'm not going to. So I had ice for three minutes, worked out for three minutes. Ice for three minutes, worked out for three minutes. Finished my workout. Oh, my gosh. My thumb was as big as my big toe. I go, I ran upstairs, grabbed my cards, and went, Oh my gosh, I can't feel so. I called the producers, Lincoln and uh, Lincoln and Andrew. They were the executive producers of the show. I said, Link, um, I had a little trouble. Um, uh, a bench crushed my thumb. I think I could do the first and third part of what we rehearsed, but I don't think I'd do the second. And he said, Get down here. He says, 
you're going to the emergency room. And they sent me to the emergency room, and they got in there, and uh, the first thing they did is they poked a hole in it. They said a, a fountain of blood shot out. I ended up having to go into surgery. And, you, and because the, I thought, this may be the end of my career. And Luke and the boys were flying in to get some footage with Ben and Teller for Delt. Yeah. And they were in air when this happened. So they land thinking they're coming in to film Penn and Teller and about, you know, whatever they were going to ask them, only to find out that I just got crushed. And uh, all the, instead, they're filming me showing my thumb that's every shade of black and blue, but the color is supposed to be. Anyway, so I ended up in surgery. And I thought, okay, if this is the end of my life, I don't want to be out. I told the surgeon, do not, I don't want to be out. I want to be, I want fully conscious. I've went through multiple surgeries and I'll just shuffle the cards with my other hand while you work on this one. And that'll just, that'll, that'll, keep, that'll be my anesthetic. And so he thought I was nuts and you can watch it. it, it it's, and, I, and I said, I want to film it too. So if this is the end of my career, I want footage. And uh, so they said, okay, well, you just put our anesthesiologist out of business. He can film it. And, it, <laughs> and you can go on YouTube and Crush Dealing Thumb feature and Crush Dealing Thumb. One is the short version, one's long, but long religious. It's on YouTube. Crush Dealing Thumb is the way you'd look it up. It, but, it, but after one, it's graphic because he, he, takes a he takes a spoon and pops my thumb open like a hood of a car. Oh. Then he takes it, he cuts it open, and he's squeezing the butt. And we're talking the whole time back and forth. And I'm shuffling cards, and they, they go back and forth, shuffle, and, and the thumb, and, and we're talking about all this. And, and I said, man, this is so cool. And he goes, why don't people want to do, do this? And he says, they go schizoid. Yeah. People go schizophrenic when they see do, go through something like this. And he said, I had to be totally unconscious before I did it. I just had a hangnail with bruise. This is a hand doctor talking. Yeah. Anyway, but, uh, but I, that, that gets back to, yeah, I am a certified oddball. So you, so you have your thumb popped open like the hood of the car. And we'll, we'll link to those videos in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> at Timmed Up Blog, so people will be able to find all of those videos. And uh, what happened after that? Did you meet well, with Penn and Teller? Or? Yeah, oh, then, when I went, yeah, Lincoln, Andrew, Lincoln Andrew said, you'll come back for our fourth season. Don't worry about it right now. Take care of your thumb. It literally took to the day before my thumbnail came back because they didn't know if it was going to take or I'm going to do, grow out another one or I was going to end up with no thumbnail at all. Fortunately, I grew out a new one. And it was literally Friday before that my manicurist finally got the last part of the wiggly, woggly looking thumbnail to be matched up. And I went on and I started the filming on the following Monday. So it took almost a year to the day. And, um, and so I, I got on their show and had a blast. It was, uh, and I fooled them faster than anybody in the history of their show. Cause, you know, they, and, and it was really fun. And, I, and Penn and Teller are just amazing performers. They are just top they notch. Are incredible. And, and, uh, and, Penn, and Teller is so funny. And people don't realize it. And I, if you watch it on the show, and I, 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 I'm told this afterwards, he was staring staring at what I'm doing and, and he's trying to signal, bring down the trophy now. And over the headpiece, he's being told, don't bring down the trophy. We want Richard to do his entire act. And then, and then beforehand they said, Richard, you gotta tell us how you do this so we can make a judgment. This is their judges, Johnny Thompson and, and Michael Close. I said, well, you know, Vernon and I are the only ones that really knows this stuff. We know that we gotta make some judgment. I said, okay, watch. I showed him in slow motion 
what I was doing, I showed and they go, my God, it really is impossible. And so then what Penn hears over his head, and this is what I was told, is don't, uh, he stood up, they were supposed to, I was supposed to have a six minute interview with Allison while they discussed how to do it. And then of course they had it down to one minute on one broadcast. And they go, um, uh, they said over the head, don't ask us, we don't know how he did it. And so then Penn turns around and says, we have nothing to say, you fooled us. And then the, fun, the cool part was, I walk off stage with Penn and I hear this, and this is exactly how you talk, Richard, F, 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 F. I said, who's that? It's me, Teller. He said, it was so wonderful to be so completely and thoroughly astonished. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I thought, they said, let's get some selfies. And, and then the really fun thing was at midnight, I, I get a call. They tell her, they said, tell her wants to know if we could come up and get a signed deck of cards from you. I said, this is backwards. I, I'm supposed to ask enough for autographs from them. And uh, I said, well, does Penn want one too? They said, oh, would you, Penn would love it. Anyway, so that was, that was kind of a cool, really cool thing. And, and like I said, they're you know, extraordinary, extraordinarily talented and extraordinary talents. And I was so honored that, uh, that they liked Delt and that they te tell her actually wrote one of the, on the, Film posters. Oh yeah, one of the blurbs. The yeah, very well earned. Yeah, and the the entire story. I mean, this is this is a perfect way to wrap up because that entire story makes me think back to Tony Giorgio mm -hmm. early on. And what was what was he saying? Don't make the money. Won't get the money. Won't, Won't get, get the, the money. money. Now later though. Later though. What did, he, what did he say? In two thousand one, I just finished my show at the castle, and there's Tony. And he and I battled each other for 20 years, 25 years. And um, they said, Richard, Tony's here to see you. And there was a, what's called the Vernon seats, where Vernon had one corner, and that's where Tony was seated, because Vernon had passed away nine years, 10 years before. And, um, and they had one seat across, waiting for me to sit down. All these top card guys were standing there waiting. They want another battle between Giorgio and Tony, Giorgio and Turner, Giorgio and Turner. They always have these showdowns, like gunfighters. And so I didn't want to have any part of it. And I said, no, I'll just stand. They, for an hour, they said, they finally said, Richard, Tony was waiting. And finally, I thought to myself, you know what? Tony was mean and hard on me, but I have to credit at least half of my accomplishments to him being my antagonist. And I thought, and I thought okay. And I said, Tony, um, I just want to thank you for all your years of encouragement. You were hard on me, you were divisive at times, but people respect you because you do the real work and you could do the real work. And because you pushed me hard, you made me better. And I wanted to thank you for that. And he goes, why thank you, Richard. That's very nice of you. Did you ever get that center deal down? And, and of course he knew I did. I said, would you mind showing us? So now I sit down now for the next two and a half hours, we're doing what everybody wanted to see. And after every, uh, Thing. He turned to us, that'll get the money, that'll get the money. <laughs> and then he actually wanted to, he actually proposed, he said, we have the perfect scam, the perfect threesome. He said, I'll tell the people you're a high state gambler, and, but you can't see, but you would love to play Hold'em. I'll be the person who reads the cards to you. He said, there's not five people in the, in the gaming world that understands your work. He said, you, we have a third agent, third part of the crew that you'll deal the good hands to. And so from the guy who said never get the money, actually proposed us putting together as a team and, uh, and hustling together. 
And, and then I actually have a handwritten letter, five-page handwritten letters, one of my best treasures from Tony Giorgio. And, uh, and then emails that say, love Tony. Amazing. So it went from won't get the money to just talking nasty and mean and times at the castle he would have to be taken out, taken out of the castle in ways he did, wasn't pleasant to him uh, to, uh, to becoming a very dear friend. And I actually had the privilege of writing one from one of the magazines, his obituary, because mm. I had a 39-year relationship with him from, from fighting to, to earning his respect. And really quickly, that came from my first director, a man named Steve Terrell, who was a TV and movie star back in the 50s and early 60s. And he was, I was in the theater company called The Lamps Players from 1972 to 78. And one of the things he would tell me is he would, well, on stage, he'd watch me, and I'd look, be looking out of the corner of my eye. Remember we talked about that? So yeah. I had no forward vision. So I'm talking to my character, and I'm looking over here. He said, Richard, you need to, you, it looks odd for you looking off to the side. I know that you can't see the, where the shadow is if, unless you turn your head to the side. He said, just look at the voice. And he taught me how to square my head towards the voice and give the impression that I could see them. He said, you've seen an actor who play the part of a blind person. You flip the roles. You're a blind person. You play the part of, an, uh, of a sighted person. And, uh, and he said, and if you, he says, he was watching me practicing before and after every scene. He says, you love cards. If you become the best card man in the world, you will earn the respect of your worst enemies. And, uh, and then that was the case with Tony Giorgio. He was uh, the guy who was an enemy. He was my big, he was my nightmare every time I went to the castle, if we ran into each other, to become an, a, a very dear man. And uh, I mean, that's, that sounds like a, another billboard. So if I, could put, if I could put up a billboard for you, that's what it would say. That'll get the money. Oh, that's that'll very get, nice. That'll get the money. Yeah. And uh, this has been so fun. We didn't even get into your hustling stories, and uh, <laughs> uh, this this entire prep has been an embarrassment of riches. So I hope this isn't uh, the last time that I see you. Hopefully, we get to spend some more time together. You name it. Where if I'm up here, I'll let you know I'm coming. Yeah. Anytime you want to visit or do something again, I'm at your. It'd be my honor and privilege to hang out together, even if it's to go have. A protein shake. Protein shake, or maybe I can just get my ass handed to me in the gym, or or maybe maybe a bit of both. And uh, what a pleasure to spend time with you finally in person, which I've wanted for so long. And people can find out all about you, Richard Turner fifty two, the number fifty two, richardturner52.com, on social, and I'll link to all of these in the show notes as well. YouTube.com forward slash asa t fifty two. That's a s a t. 52 and then also youtube.com forward slash Richard Turner 52. We'll link to all of this uh, for speaking. You're repped by APB Speaking Bureau. My, uh, American Program Bureau, APB. And uh, that's one of my favorite things to do now is for some reason people are inspired and my wife says, people want to hear your story. And yeah. I always want to just be an entertainer. But I have to say I am really blessed that I have the privilege of speaking and entertaining some of the most amazing companies in the on the planet. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, you are also, of course, featured in Delt, which has, at least last I checked, a 95% 95, yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, it is uh, one of my favorite documentaries I've seen in uh, certainly the last five years. It's, it's just spectacular. And uh, I am greatly 
inspired by you, slightly terrified of you. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to, to watching your further ongoing adventures and um, hope, to, uh, hope to have a protein shake in the near future. But uh, thanks very much for coming. Really appreciate hey, it. It was my pleasure, Tim. It was a pleasure to be with you and I'm honored as well. Thank you, sir. And uh, for everybody watching or listening, uh, we will have a lot to link to in the show notes and uh, many resources. We also have, of course, the video if you're listening via audio, which you can check out at youtube.com forward slash Tim Ferriss or just go to tim.blog and you'll find it there. And for the show notes, all the links, just go to tim.blog forward slash podcast, type in Richard Turner and bam, lickety split, you'll have what you need. And until next time, be safe, train hard, practice perfectly if you're gonna practice and thanks for listening, thanks for watching. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Inktel. I've used them personally. Ever since I wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, I've been asked over and over again how I choose to delegate tasks, how I do 80-20 analysis, and so on. At the root of many of those decisions is a simple question, actually two questions. Number one, how can I invest money to improve my quality of life? I use that in investing as well. The second, how can I spend a little money or moderate money to save significant time? Inktel is one of those investments. They're a turnkey solution for all of your imaginable customer care needs. I used Inktel during the launch of the 4-Hour Body, which was very, very involved, and they provided 24-7 customer service for my Land Rush campaign because it was critical for me to take care of every person who purchased my books and participated. This allowed me to focus on the things that I am better at, my strengths, like the marketing plan that we'd worked on for six months, implementing that. Inktel trains their experienced customer service reps to know your business and your products inside and out and make your customers raving fans. They answer more than a million customer service requests every year, and they can do so across all platforms, including email, phone, social media, text, even chat. Leaving your customers with poor service or just mediocre service, which by the way, in a competitive pool is a huge liability. Long wait times or unanswered messages carries a massive cost and risk to your business. Inktel removes the logistics and headaches of this type of communication, allowing you to focus on your strengths and grow your business. 
it can be a real competitive advantage. And I see many, many e-commerce companies and tech companies thinking of customer service as a good enough checkbox or an afterthought. And just like Airbnb, you design in innovative ways to be a competitor and to win, you can do the same thing with customer service. So as a listener of this podcast, you can get up to $10,000 off big discount. $10,000 off your startup fees and costs by visiting inktel.com forward slash Tim. So check it out. For more info, go to inktel.com, I-N-K-T-E-L.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Nulo Pet Food, an independently owned company out of Austin, Texas that delivers the very best pet nutrition with high meat, low carb recipes for dogs and cats. I am super stoked about this sponsor. I had no idea they were based in Austin. But I found Nulo through a number of friends of mine and veterinarians. It's what I feed my own dog, Molly. And when I switched Molly over to Nulo, that's N-U-L-O, a couple of years ago, it not only made an immediate difference in the way she looked, her coat, for instance, is much softer and much shinier. I could also tell it made a huge difference in how she felt and performed day to day. So I have Nulo all over the place. There's a bag of Nulo about 30 feet away from me in the office where I sometimes feed Molly when she comes here. I have Nulo at home. I have Nulo in gallon size bags for travel. Nulo is always with me and Molly. She loves how it tastes because Nulo pet food has a lot of meat in it. And I can't really imagine feeding her anything else at this point. If you have a pup and you've been thinking about upgrading their food quality in 2020, check out nulo.com slash Tim. That's N-U-L-O dot com slash Tim to see some of Molly's favorite products. By using the promo code TIM, T-I-M, you'll also get 50% off any trial size bag on their site. So two things to remember, nulo.com slash Tim and then promo code Tim. As good pet parents, it's up to us, it's up to you doggy parents, cat parents, to get the nutrition piece right for them. So check out nulo.com slash Tim and commit to feeding your pets better food this year. They'll love you for it and you'll love what it does for them. So one more time, that's nulo.com slash Tim. 